0: Ian? Hmm? This is a tidal pool.
1: Yes, I agree. Rather ties up with the glass beach, doesn't it? Then everything out
0: there is acid too
2: of Acid. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're working our way through Doctor Who from the beginning to figure out what's worth watching for a modern audience. I'm your host, the guy who spent decades watching my Doctor Who VHS tapes on my 8-track system, wearing them down until they are just stretched out static, and I no longer have any idea what's going on. Guy is here representing normal human beings who live in the future and watch on-demand streaming shows in ultra-def 4K with super-duper Dolby Surround. Hello, Guy. Hello. Hello. How's your super-duper Dolby Surround going? Oh, it's uh, just delightful. (laughs) So I guide us through the series, and Guy makes the final determination of what's worth watching for normal people. Okay, time to set some context for today's story. It's written by Terry Nation, who wrote the Daleks story and got famous for that and famous for creating the Daleks. A big part of this is that he was deep into the research for a different story he was supposed to write, a historical story, when things went wrong with what they were planning to do for this story. And they turned to him at the last minute and said, drop what you're doing. We need you to write a new story from scratch, science fiction, right now. And so we did that, and we'll see the results of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the scripts were actually coming in week to week, so it was one of those situations where they were just going on the fly. Yeah. And one interesting downside of the Daleks was they had done such a great job in the Daleks of creating the environment and the sets and the Daleks that terry nation concluded oh i can just write anything i want down and these guys are going to be able to put it on the screen yeah the problem is in the daleks it was basically one set (laughs) one set of monsters and they were able to put their whole budget into making that work in this story Terry nation gave them like five different, <laughs> complete different locations required completely new sets for every single location. So they had to stretch their budget five times as much as they did in the Daleks. And, you know, we'll see. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. Um, also he by now knew about the success of the Daleks and the idea was he was going to create a, the next Daleks, <laughs>
3: Yeah, that didn't work. So that would have been the Vord, I take it?
2: Yep. Oh, yep. All right. Who we never ever see again. <laughs> <Dr>.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> also, we see here in only a second story for Doctor Who. Terry Nation starts his habit of retelling the same story. This was so they had this love hate relationship with Terry Nation as a writer because he had some really interesting ideas. You know, he made the whole success of the show popular with the Daleks, but he was lazy and he would basically turn in the same script over and over again. Years from now, you know, if we will live that long, we will get to one of his best stories called Genesis of the Daleks, which is a Tom Baker hmm. story, where what happened, in fact, was he turned in a script. And the the editor was like, you've got to be kidding. This is the exact same script as last year. You've just changed the names of the characters. You need to do an original script or we're not going to accept it. And then he did an original script, which turned out to be actually a great script. So Uh uh, we'll we'll see when we get there. (laughs) On the other hand, while he's already repeating things, I'll also say this is probably the weirdest story progression in the history of the show.
3: Because it really is just a number
2: of short stories jammed together, (laughs) as we'll see.
4: Yeah,
3: they seem really... Really disjointed, I mean they're only only aside from the search for the micro keys that we'll find out about in a moment here uh, oh. uh, aside from that, there's really not a lot tying them all together um, mm-hmm. so no oh well, we'll go with it
2: <laughs> well, okay, let's see what it's all about, starting with the first episode, the Sea of death <laughs>
3: In the beginning of this episode, we get a view of uh, an island, a little desert island with a pyramid, a big pyramid on it. And it looks like there's a lot of lush vegetation all over the island. Then the camera begins to zoom in and it becomes clear. Two things become clear. One, what looked like vegetation from a distance is actually just rocks. <laughs> and what looked like a map painting from a distance is actually a big model. They actually took the time to craft this whole thing uh, in 3D. And the TARDIS, a little model of the TARDIS, uh, materializes on the beach. And uh, it's pretty recognizably a model, but still, (laughs) I give them points for
1: effort. Right, right.
3: We
2: mentioned before we weren't able to watch Marco Polo because that episode was erased and no one has ever seen it except for photographs of it. And Ian is wearing his costume from Marco Polo, and it looks great.
3: <laughs> yeah. it's That, I believe, is called a happy coat. Uh, if it's not, then it's very much like a happy coat. Uh, and you'll find many... Uh, Many local chapters of the Hash House Harriers Running Club have their own happy coat designs. So. Well, now you need to explain what the running club is. Well, the, their tagline is um, a drinking club with a running problem. So uh, <laughs> that's probably enough said about that. Fun fun place. Most big cities have, uh, have their own kennel of the Hash House Harriers, so. Worth checking out when you're in town. They're usually open to everybody. But uh, that's all, by the by. Uh, I'd wanted to focus on the happy coat here because it's just a fun little detail. And and until you mentioned it, it hadn't occurred to me, yes, it probably comes from whatever happened in the Marco Polo episodes that are lost to history.
2: Right, right. And I'm curious, uh, I, I didn't see anything in my research It wouldn't surprise me if the actor said, "Hey, why don't I keep wearing this?" You know, who knows? Because everybody else has regular clothing on, so Mm -hmm. technically, there's no reason that he would be the only one doing this. But um,
3: he might have just been having
2: fun with it, yeah. And he keeps it on through the entire story. Um, So Barbara says an the thing that gets a weird response from the doctor which I think is a little insight into the time that this was filmed. They're looking at the monitor at what is outside the TARDIS. And Barbara says, it's a pity you don't have Keller television. Well, this is in black and white. And I have to assume that that means that Keller TVs had started to come out, you know, but probably Mm -hmm. only uh, people with more, uh, disposable income could afford them yeah, and yeah. the doctor is clearly embarrassed and he makes this excuse and i couldn't tell what he was saying but in my research I, I learned and it's a phrase I've never heard before i don't know if you had he said uh the Keller monitor is hors de combat
3: oh yeah yeah i uh i i have heard that one it's just out of the running
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it, they used to use it i think it was a French term for people in the field of combat who actually couldn't be combatants. So you might've been um, wounded or, you know, you might be an assistant or something. And mm-hmm. there was actually a whole different set of legal rules for how the conquering country could, could prosecute and treat people who were oars to combat. So that was all new to me, but it was uh, just clear that the doctor was embarrassed that he, that he didn't have a television, yeah. seems a little odd for, for Dr. Who. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, now we switch. Well, they, here's an interesting thing about the filming of Doctor Who. One of the things early on that you'll notice is because of the complexities with the sets and because they were on a very small set where they couldn't do that much, usually they cannot show when they open the doors of the TARDIS, they cannot show you what is outside. Because that requires a whole bunch of extra set design and they may not have had space for it and everything. So usually mm-hmm. they're going to open the doors. You can't really see anything. Then you're going to switch and they're going to step outside of a set into uh, – of a different TARDIS set into the actual environment they're coming into. In this case, they open the doors and you can actually see the outside. So that's unusual. That means they did some work for that. Mm-hmm. And then we switch to a shot of these little tube things being pulled by strings through the water. <laughs> <laughs> There's really bad models and everything. It's supposed to be some yeah. kind of amphibious craft, as we'll see. The funny thing is the whole point of that shot while you're watching these things be pulled through the water, in the meantime, the actors are all running from the TARDIS set they were in to a different TARDIS set so they can step out <laughs> into the actual ah. environment to make, to make that uh, illusion complete.
3: Oh, Okay. Yeah, that, they're covering for the uh, stage-shifting stuff. Yeah. All right. But the, the submarines themselves, it is, it is as effects go, it's it's kind of crappy because the strings can't even move uh, <laughs> smoothly. You know, they're kind of mm-hmm. jer- jerky, and they're very obviously models. But the design of the submarines, that's a different thing. It is kind mm-hmm. of like a Buck Rogers-esque combined with... Uh, they kind of look like fish. They've got fins and stuff. So the design is interesting, uh, but the implementation eh, leaves something to be desired.
2: <laughs> yeah, and each one appears designed to carry one person, so they're pretty small. Right. So the crew goes outside the TARDIS to explore. We've already mentioned that there's these strange rocks. Um, there's a very calm sea. Uh, And here's where you get into one of those, Terry Nation already retelling the same story. Do you remember a story where they step outside and it's kind of a dead landscape and there's a far distant city that they're going to travel to? Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so we're seeing it all again <laughs> yeah the dialect and that was uh well that was just the one well it would have been three before if you count the missing Marco Polo but. yeah yeah but, well it was the last Terry Nation story <laughs>
4: ah.
2: uh, there's this absolutely calm sea Susan immediately wants to go for a swim in this unknown sea <laughs> yeah. yeah it's uh not the most prudent course <laughs> And uh, as they're walking toward the sea, two, and we're going to see this a whole lot in this story, in, in the different episodes of this story, two feet away from them, there's some dude in a wetsuit who's following <laughs> them, and none of them see him. It's 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 amazing in this story. Nobody has peripheral vision.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. People get away with a lot of a uh, lot of hiding in plain sight here.
2: Yeah, this guy in the new wetsuit is supposed to be the new monster. You know, the Vord is what we'll come to see. So we got big glass chunks in the sand.
3: Oh, yeah. One of the early looks you get at the Vord, it starts off showing you their feet. And they they look like giant swim fins uh, because that's what they are. And I was wondering at first if that's supposed to be monster feet. But I think they're just actually supposed to be swim fins. like Yes, frog.
2: apparently this entire race walks around all the time encased in a wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, it's given the environment, it's understandable, right. as we'll find out.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, as we mentioned, Susan wants to go swimming. She starts undressing to go into the water. You know, what could go wrong? Now, here's here's a, a bizarre thing. I swear, I've never done this. I don't know about you. The first thing she does is take off her shoes and throw them into the water. <laughs> <laughs> well, Who I'm throws doing- her
3: shoes into the water? <laughs> Do you actually see her throw them though? Because I was wondering if maybe she had just set them down, like at the you know in the shallow water, uh, to make it easier to put them on when she's getting out. Well, that's, that's probably, the charitable interpretation, so we we can go with that. It's but the uh, overthinking interpretation.
2: I guess it's lucky that she <laughs> did because Ian notices that her shoes are immediately dissolving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he warns her, and. Um, Rather than her just stopping, this being unfortunately the way they've chosen to treat Susan, she immediately goes into total panic mode, falls into Barbara's arms, yelling and screaming. <laughs> you
4: know.
3: That's our Susan.
2: <laughs> so Ian gives Susan his boots. Uh, we'll see, this gets to be a little bit weird.
3: And while he's doing that, Barbara realizes this is a sea of acid. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the whole sea around the island, uh, because she realizes it's a tidal pool. So at some point in the day cycle, the sea splashes up this far, uh, which is about the time where I would be ready to just head back to the TARDIS and, you know, hit the <laughs> random destination button and see what mm-hmm. happens.
2: Um, so then we have another weird moment, the Barbara Ian and the doctor are talking about Susan's experience and we get, you know, it's a Billy fluff, but it's a really weird <laughs> where the doctor says, if you'd had your shoes on my boy, you could have lent
3: her hers. <laughs> yeah, I, I caught that after a moment. I, I, I knew what he had meant to say, but it's still uh, kind of cryptic at first. <laughs>
2: So then they walk up to a full-size version of one of those models we saw being pulled along. It's basically a glass torpedo, so I say, kind of a one-man submarine. This leads them to the conclusion that this place is inhabited.
3: Logical choice, or logical conclusion, <laughs> rather. Mm-hmm.
2: Susan, who apparently now has gone back to the TARDIS to, to get dressed, comes out holding Ian's boots. I don't know why she didn't put them on earlier or while she was inside the TARDIS. I don't know. She then sees some wetsuit footprints, uh, walks by the totally obviously wetsuit guy, and in the meantime, she doesn't bother to put on the boots. I guess she got distracted and she dropped the boots. <laughs> Her handling of shoe wear in this—okay, am I if, getting this
3: wrong? What do you think? Well, I think if I think she's got like little little black shoes on, I think the boots she means to give back to Ian. I'm okay. Not sure.
2: Okay, again, you are being generous to Susan, but I will, <laughs> I will give you that interpretation. <laughs> uh, so she walks by the totally obvious wetsuit guy crouching behind a rock. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, Barbara, Ian, and the doctor examine the submarine. It had a leak. They find an empty wetsuit inside, and they surmise that the wetsuits are to protect against the acid. And this particular wetsuit got a rip in it, and so the guy who was inside it got totally dissolved.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a very small slit. So it probably, uh, you know, got in and just sort of slowly ate away at him. So <laughs> one of those Doctor Who horror moments. hmm
2: And now Ian suddenly notices the huge pyramid in the distance that <laughs> we saw in the establishing shot. <laughs> Uh, that, that, you know, far away city that Terry Nation likes to do. Um, another one where, again, I will appreciate, as we have in the past, instead of making us trudge through the forest, they jump right there. Susan is already at the pyramid. I notice here that they attempt to do something that worked well, in, in my opinion, in the Daleks, where when Barbara and the Daleks first goes into the city, you see this long hallway of these slanted doors, and then there's a, a backdrop that continues as a as a painting that hallway on, and, and that worked really mm-hmm. well in the Daleks. They try to do exactly the same thing here. They have a long sequence of slanted doors and and a backdrop continuing them on, and it looks like crap.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's not as convincing, um, and they're 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 very high. They're like buttresses, you know, up against the side of the building. Uh, so. So they're much taller than the Daleks doorways, and that may have made it harder to make a convincing shot. And then again, uh, going back to the old 12-inch black and white screen, that may not have been nearly so evident to mm-hmm. viewers at mm-hmm. home. And
2: uh, while Susan is looking around, there's a wetsuit dude around the corner holding a knife, so we can be scared about that. <laughs> Uh, the other folks return to the TARDIS and see the boots that Susan left behind. And then we're back to Susan and the wetsuit guy, before he can attack her, he suddenly gets pulled behind a rotating door panel. So he sort of chose the wrong place to lean against the wall.
3: Yeah, and and secret doors, at least in these first three episodes, uh, they're kind of a recurring theme. You're going to get a good look at a variety (laughs) of them.
2: Basically, you can't lean against any wall without getting spun around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Barbara, Ian, and Doctor have now arrived at the Pyramid. And now, uh, you know, in every story, someone has to do this. And this time, it's the Doctor's turn. He says, let's all split up. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's worked so well every time before that we all split up in a strange place.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that seems to be becoming a trope of the show. uh, (laughs) That's sort of the default action, split up. Meanwhile, while they're looking for her, Susan,
2: you know, manages her fall backwards into a rotating door thingy. And of course she screams, being Susan. Doctor then manages to do the same thing. Seems pretty easy. Just pick a door or pick a wall, lean against it. You'll get spun around into it. Yeah. Then Susan is walking in a corridor. There is a completely visible wetsuit guy standing right in front of her and she doesn't notice him. (laughs) I swear, there's some kind of invisibility technology in this story that we that we aren't aware of. It could be in shadows. Yeah.
0: Well,
2: I'll while she's that. not noticing him, a dude in white robes shows up behind her, and she, even though he's behind her, she turns around and sees him. So she doesn't see the wet suit guy right in front of her, but she does see the guy who shows up behind her. He then runs away,
3: and well, well after he run- has a, this guy has a light outfit, so he's more yeah. visible. Yeah, from behind. <laughs> I'm just making excuses.
2: <laughs> yeah. And then while she's, um, while she's looking at where the, the guy in the white robe was, she backs up because that's what you do. You just back up randomly <laughs> into the corridor until she backs into the websuit guy. Uh, time for some more screaming. But before he could do anything to her, the websuit guy falls down and it turns out he has a knife in his back. From where, when, I don't know. He was standing there waiting for her to back into him, at which point he would realize he had been stabbed and fall over.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, to to plot it out in your mind, you know, the the white robed guy goes back around the corner after he's been spotted and he goes to the other side of the wall where he does the stabbing, and then right afterwards he comes right back around the corner. <laughs> To get his recognition, I guess.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see.
3: Then Ian and Barbara
2: both find their own spots on the walls to get rotated around. (laughs) Yeah. Ian finds the web suit guy who was stabbed. And here we just go into these sort of sequence of events because they don't, you know, they don't make a lot of sense to me. But um, Susan describes her ordeal to everybody. They determine that the wetsuit people are also intruders in this building. Okay, you know, whatever. The white robe dude is being attacked by a wetsuit dude when the crew comes to him and sees what's happening. And Ian fights the wetsuit dude. And he falls back against another wall. And behind this wall is a pit that goes down to a presumably acid pool. And we see a little tiny doll fall into the pool. (laughs)
3: And this, the, probably the only reason that stuck in my mind is because as it falls, it's an actual physical object they're throwing down, and as it falls, it rotates, and you can see that it's two, two-dimensional. It's like on a <laughs> piece of clear plastic painted on something, you know, so uh, it's it's uh, not, not one of their high points in the effects department.
2: Mm-hmm. So the white robe dude tells them that the uh, websuit dudes are the Vords. So that's the new Daleks. Uh, says he's alone in this building. And next thing, everyone is with the white robe guy in a big control room. And the, the major thing in this control room is this sort of m- machinery that is made of plexiglass that is all scratched up, which I don't think they intended. I think it was just <laughs> they just took whatever plexiglass they had and it happened to be scratched up yeah uh, and this machinery is called the conscience of marinus yeah
3: oh and the guard's name is arbitan by yeah. the way They'll the white robe guy is
2: ground. arbitan yep yeah
3: and he tells them that
2: this uh conscience of marinus machine is a judge and jury that was never wrong and if all the the keys of marinus are plugged in it influences the minds of men Nothing bad. It just eliminates the evil from the minds of men for all time. So nothing that could go wrong with that. Yeah,
3: yeah, it's a it's it's a helpful little device. Although, you know, uh, who who sets the standards of <laughs> what what constitutes these good deeds? You know, it's uh, I, I'm a little skeptical of it actually. A benevolent mind control device. It sounds a little dodgy to me. <laughs> It's the future. They've got it all
4: figured out. (laughs) Uh,
2: So somebody figured out how to, oh, oh, here's the deal. The leader of the boards had figured out how to overcome this benevolent machine that made everybody good. And so they then used it to control everyone because, you know, a completely unexpected outcome of having a mind control machine is that a bad person would use it to control everybody. (laughs) So to protect the machine, the white robe dude removed the five key microcircuits and distributed them around the planet.
3: Now, one of them is still here in the pyramid. That's true. So I think there
2: are one here and four distributed around the planet. You're right. Yeah. Sounds like a quest. (laughs) It sounds like maybe we're going to need to go get the four keys.
3: Yeah, as 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 soon as he started mentioning the five keys, I was like, "Oh, brother." <laughs> and sure enough that it's a, wait, it's a key quest. <laughs>
2: wait until a far future Doctor episode. Wait until a far future Doctor Who season in which the entire season is retrieving keys. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so he says to them, "You must find the keys for me." And they're like, eh, no, nah, we don't want to do that. We're going to go back to the TARDIS and leave. Why, why would we want to do? Which is, the, yeah. I think, the most rational thing in all of yeah. these stories.
3: You know, and actually, at very first, I mean, the old guy seems nice, you know. And, uh, but then you, you think about it more. And, you know, the proposition is they have to run about to four different locations to find the keys to this supposedly benevolent mind control device. Uh, there's which just... has already been used for evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's really. I mean, they they have a good reason to say, uh, "Thanks, good luck with that." We're leaving. <laughs> <laughs> so they leave, and the crew returns to the TARDIS. <laughs> it turns out that Arbitan
2: has erected a force field around the TARDIS, and the crew now goes into a mime routine—the worst mime routine in history—in <laughs> which they pretend that there is a force field around the TARDIS. <laughs> Arbitan's voice appears, tells him he puts up the force field, says they're going to starve if they don't help him get the keys. So, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? I don't know. They go back to him. They agree to do his stupid little quest. <laughs> he gives them teleportation devices, which are basically watches that they put on their wrist. And whenever they rotate the watch, they will travel to the next quest destination <laughs> in this story. Yeah. So they and need that, to go to each destination, find a key, and then go to the
3: next one. And they end up referring to these as the travel dials or junk dials. Yep.
2: Yeah. So um, not really questioning anything. Everyone just twists their travel dial and disappears. And then a Vord shows up behind the white robe dude Arbitan and stabs him, and he's dead.
3: <laughs> yeah. It's worth mentioning that Barbara... Uh, jumps the gun a little, uh, yeah. she, yeah. uh, somebody says, just twist the dial once. And she says like this, <laughs> she's gone.
2: <laughs> right. And that's going to have some implications. Also, I find it a uh, definitely interesting and probably in the story's favor that literally seconds after they start their quest, which is going to take them weeks and weeks of viewer time, uh, to complete <laughs> the guy who sent them on the quest is
3: already dead. And the entire thing <laughs> is useless. <laughs> Well, he's apparently dead. We don't know yeah. for certain. That's true. He probably is dead. And, and and how convenient it was that just before he got stabbed and everybody left, he said, If the if you get back and the building is taken over, destroy the keys. So, <laughs> right, so I haven't, gonna... haven't seen the last episodes of this, so I don't know if they're going to actually destroy the keys or not, but uh that's the advice they have. <laughs> Yes,
2: I want you to spend weeks doing this, and then if it turns out to be useless, don't worry about it. (laughs) Um, So we go to our new location, and everyone but Barbara is there. They can't find her. They see her travel dial on the ground. It has blood on it. Dun, dun, dun. End of the episode. So next up is the Velvet Web.
3: (laughs) All right, at the beginning of the Velvet Web our companions have found Barbara's dropped or discarded travel dial covered in blood. (laughs) And uh, they enter a room full of Romanesque statues and there's a pulsing bright light, loud computer beep sounds. uh, And they're tremendously relieved to find that Barbara is doing just fine. In fact, she's lounging on a chaise or something like that (laughs) in a very refined patrician style dress
2: yes and and one of the kind of weird things here is she left a few seconds before they did but she is now in a dress in here is being attended by servants has already had a conversation with somebody so (laughs) who knows what's going on with all that
3: (laughs) (laughs) well maybe the travel dial was just slightly off you know (laughs) she said like 10 minutes earlier or something.
2: Yeah, so she's reclining on this couch, eating grapes. She's being attended by servants, which in the time frame, if this had been Rome, would be slaves, obviously. And Mm -hmm. we'll see what that's all about. And when asked what the deal was with her travel dial, gives the weirdest story. She's like, well, while I was traveling, you know, in kind of time and space there, I got concerned and I tried to scrape the dial off my wrist and that's how the blood showed up. And then it fell off and it's uh,
4: okay.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And then she forgot about it and just walked inside. Yep. Yeah, she wasn't going to need it again.
2: The crew is amazed by all the luxury. Um, you know, this is a really fabulous place. Uh, the servants bring in a, a a great feast for them. Everyone starts eating except for Ian.
3: Right? Now, although at first, and I want to mention this line because it kind of entertained me. It's not a hugely funny line, but, uh, he says, uh, "Perhaps if Your Majesty will stop hogging the grapes, we can all have <laughs> some." And he, he says it pleasantly. He's just giving Barbara a little, you know, good-natured ribbing. Uh, but it, I liked it because it's, um, you know, it it seems to show the evolution of a more casual acquaintance. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, where they're they're not they're not just co-school teachers; they're mm. you know, fellow traveling companions um but then there's going to be some
2: interesting questions about that in future stories (laughs) oh okay very good yeah and then uh this is interesting because only everyone else is really happy to accept this fabulous place and this great food and they start chowing down and ian refuses to he's the only one who's skeptical and, and i love the lines he says here he says i haven't been shown the menu and First, that's a little confusing. Like, the food is right in front of them. What do you mean you haven't been shown the menu? And and then he explains. He says, I don't know the price yet.
3: Yeah. That's a good uh, good observation, I think, uh, uh, particularly as events unfold. But, uh, but <laughs> yeah. just his instinct is uh, it's pretty good in this case uh, to wonder what's the catch.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, well, he's saying this a, a stranger shows up and ian says this is where we pay the bill
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, the stranger is altus and i will try to remember the names i have to i swear especially in the terry nation ones i can't remember anybody's name but i uh, you know it was the same in the daleks
3: um, they are in the city of Morphet. I think it's Morphoton, or I don't know. It's, yeah, you're right.
2: I, I did. I've put that in wrong. It's it's Morpheus or Morphoton. Yeah, I think you're right. They're in the city of Morphoton. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah.
2: And Altus tells them, "Our people are the most contented in the universe. Nothing is denied to anyone. You just have to say what you want, and we'll give it to you. No problem at all."
3: Our one wish is to fulfill your every need. It's yeah. a direct quote I wrote down. <laughs> Always nice when you can find that. Yeah. <laughs> So now we're in Wizard of Oz
2: territory, and literally everyone starts asking for what they want.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: So Susan wants a dress to be made from a silk she's seen here. And kind of a funny thing about this, uh, Carol Ann Ford, who plays Susan, she liked her Marco Polo dress so much that she bought it from the production. Oh. And William Hartnell, who plays the doctor, thought this was really dumb. because He's like, we're actors. We never know when we're going to get a paycheck. You're buying this ridiculously luxurious dress when, who knows, when your next paycheck's going to come.
3: You know, that was his. Uh,
2: and of course, he probably went through the Depression and World oh, War II sure. and all that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in the uh, character, <laughs> the doctor gets in on this and he's like, you know, what I'd like is a really well equipped laboratory with every conceivable instrument.
3: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. that's true. A- Good wish, and, and he gets it, in a yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had no problem. Uh, then Altus tells everyone
2: they should go to sleep, and they immediately start getting tired. You kind of make think maybe what they were eating contributed to this in some way. Ian is still skeptical. Before everyone falls asleep, he says, Did you notice that man's eyes? He didn't blink once.
3: <laughs> a little ominous foreshadowing there. <laughs> And in fact, in contrast to that, very shortly, once everybody has fallen asleep, there's a relief sculpture on the wall that's just a face. It looks like Mm. similar to, you know, the Greek gods, you know, some old man with a beard type thing, but uh, its eyes light up. The hidden Mm. door opens (laughs) again with the hidden doors. Uh, A woman comes in and she walks around to each sleeping companion and puts a small little token that looks like a poop emoji on everyone's forehead. (laughs) Yeah, and then Barbara
2: wakes up and and her poop emoji falls off, (laughs) Yeah, which has a lot of implications later. But even now, because as soon as that happens, the flashing lights and sounds that people encountered when they came into the room start up again and cause her to collapse. Right. Then we jump to breakfast, and everybody but Barbara's awake. She's fast asleep, and uh, they're eating a
3: fabulous breakfast. Susan's silk dress shows up. And everybody's in good spirits, except for Barbara, who's still asleep. Uh, But their foreheads are sore because of the poop emojis that were sitting (laughs) on them all night. And then they
2: wake up Barbara, and... We get a different point of view. We get her point of view. So instead of the fabulous room and costumes and everything we've been seeing, she sees a squalid room. And she sees that Susan, rather than holding an elegant silk dress, is holding cloth rags. Yeah. And they bring her a, you know, like crystal glass of water to to help her. But it's actually a filthy mug. And she's so disgusted, she just swats it away.
3: Yeah, and this it reminds me, uh, and this is I don't know how many people this reference will be relevant to, but there's a scene or a segment in the video game Bioshock 2, uh, where you play one of the little sisters who are uh people in this under underwater city who have been uh raised from childhood to carry out special tasks for the city, and they've been brainwashed and probably drugged as well to see the whole city in this golden glowing light, you know, as beautiful and covered with rose petals and all that, even though the city is actually waterlogged and falling apart. A, A really
2: interesting point here. You know, Ian was so skeptical. He was the only one thinking this might not be what it seems. And now he is lost. Now he is the one sitting there trying to tell Barbara no, everything's fine. What are you talking about?
3: And we'll soon find these uh these little turd tokens are actually called either mesmerants or somnar discs. <laughs> so that's add that to your vocabulary. Yeah,
2: one of the uh one of the things with Terry Nation, he's not good at names. He just names the you know, names the thing what it is. <laughs> <That's right there>. <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay, so Altos comes back in because so barbara is really upset she's trying to convince everybody that what they're seeing is not reality so we have a situation here where everyone but barbara is seeing this very elegant place with all this wonderful stuff and they're given anything they ask for barbara is now seeing this really run down place where everything is crap and they have no idea what they're talking about altus walks into the room sees what's going on says clearly there's something wrong with barbara he wants to take her to their physicians she runs away from him and hides in some other room he eventually comes into that room and we have another one of those things in the story where she's standing right there but he can't see her
3: <laughs> yeah it's uh it, she's at, at the base of the entrance stairs and there's a column jutting out of the wall but it's not a it's not jutting out very far i mean all he'd have to do is yeah, you know, turn his head and he'd probably see something. Yeah, there's like a two-inch column
2: there and so, and that <laughs> completely disguises her from him. So uh, he walks one foot from her and then leaves, but it turns out he has locked the door, so she can't get out. Yeah. Now here is my favorite part of this story. We go into a room or he Altus goes into a room which has brains in jars. Which, if you've ever watched Matt Groening's Futurama, they have brains in jars, and I'm sure it came from other things as well, but who knows, it may have started with this. Uh, So Uh, I love the brains in jars, not just the brains in jars, they have eye stalks, really long, like foot-long eye stalks, and then eyeballs at the top of them.
3: I think think brains in jars go way back. I'm sure that EC was using them in their comics in the early 50s, and... (laughs) Probably in the pulp magazines in the 30s for all I know. So we learn
2: over time that the brains are the brains of this entire operation. They basically hypnotize everyone into thinking they're living this ideal life. And then they turn them into slaves because the brains, since they have no bodies, they need other people to do everything for them.
3: And the the brains they're pretty they're pretty cool looking I think they they have this realistic pulsing action and they've yeah. got a uh, these two slug eye stalks uh, <laughs> sticking out of them and it and they they actually they spoil a little bit of the coolness later on because you get to see the front view and <laughs> the eyes on the end of the slug eye stalks are just these big. Goofy-looking, googly eyes that really uh, (laughs) kind of detracts from the atmosphere. But uh, overall, they're they're pretty creepy-looking things.
2: Yeah, I like them.
3: And so they tell
2: Altus that uh, Barbara must be found and destroyed. They say now that she is seen through the illusion, they cannot control her. There's nothing they can do, so she needs to be killed. And they also indicate that the girl who was putting the rock-slash- poop emojis on people's foreheads since she screwed up and the one on Barbara's forehead fell off she needs to be punished and now Altus takes the doctor and Ian to the laboratory the doctor had requested and this is great because we remember they had absolutely no budget and so in this case they walk into an empty room with a with a really uh, crappy table with a really really crappy mug on it and that's all they show you but you know that Ian and the doctor are seeing this fabulous laboratory and they're completely impressed by it. And the amazing thing here then is it totally works because they didn't have to spend any money showing you a real laboratory, but they make it work in your head. Like, you know what they are seeing.
3: Right. Yeah, it's a a fun little scene. The doctor holds up this grody old mug and he says something like, ah, I can use this instrument to repair the TARDIS. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then we're
2: back to Barbara in her locked room. And uh, the girl um, who put the rocks on people's heads is shoved into the room. The door is locked again. Turns out the girl has one of the mariners' keys around her neck. And Barbara asked her about this. And she's confused. All she knows is that a guy named Arbin sent her here. She can't really remember who he was. She only knows she has the key because when she came here, she asked for it and really wanted it. And so the brains gave it to her. And But she's very confused and disoriented. And then we're back to the brains room. And one of the interesting things, again, about the budget, it, and it worked in this case, I think, is because the in, whenever you're in the room with the brains, there are no walls. They just had black curtains because they had no budget to make walls. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
3: That was how bare bones they were. And
2: yet, because you're in this weird room with these brains, it works fine that everything around it is black, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. The darkness adds a little little bit of sinisterness, I think. And the brains
2: indicate uh, that their plan is to send the men in the team to work parties and to make use of the doctor for his brains. And they're going to turn Susan into one of these assistant slash slaves. And we're back to Barbara. Altus comes in. She tries to hide, but she makes a noise. They get in a fight. While they're fighting, the girl knocks Altus
3: out. It's Sabitha.
2: Yeah, we find out that's her name. Yep, Sabitha. Um, Barbara leaves the room, finds Ian, but it turns out Ian is no longer Ian. So he's essentially a zombie. He doesn't recognize her. He grabs her and he takes her to the brains. And they tell him to kill her. So he starts to strangle her. But she
3: resists. Which uh, <laughs> I, 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 it wasn't exactly clear. Maybe I wasn't paying enough attention, or maybe it happened too fast. I mean, I'm not the fastest observer in the world. But uh, somehow she turns the situation around in an in instant, and uh, Ian is suddenly out of the picture or down for the count for a moment at least. And she starts smashing all the slug domes. <laughs> Uh, so problem solved.
2: Well, interesting thing here, right? She smashes one dome. She doesn't smash any of the others. She just hits the table in front of them. And at first I thought they must've told her not to smash them in case they needed to do multiple takes. But in my research, apparently she was supposed to smash all of them. One person's theory is that the thing that she was swinging, which was, I don't know, some piece of leather or, you know, it was hard to see what it was. Um, When she smashed the first dome, it's it sort of broke apart, Mm -hmm. and so she only had a part of it. And she didn't want. And and the theory here is she didn't want to hit the other glass domes because she was afraid she was going to hurt her hand because now it was a very small thing. So she just smacked the table. So so if you watch carefully, she smashes one thing and nothing else gets smashed. She's just flailing around. But once she, does the, once she has smashed some domes, the spell is broken. Ian is back to normal. And all of a sudden, we jump to a later scene. And apparently outside, uh, a mob is torching the city because the entire mob that had been hypnotized has now come to their senses and they're pissed off. And the crew is ready. To, so they now have the key because uh, Sabitha, the girl, had it around her neck. So the crew is ready to move on to their next quest destination and Altus and Sabitha are going along with them. And here we get the announcement from the doctor that he's jumping ahead like two steps in the quest. <laughs> and what this means yeah. is William Hartnell is getting a two-week vacation.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right, that, uh, that that accounts for that. There. <laughs> yeah, so he's uh, going to be
2: gone for a while, so that's why he's jumping ahead. Yeah,
3: uh, Altus remembered that one of his associates, Eprin, was sent to the fourth key, and it was sent to a place that's a well-ordered society, and <laughs> the doctor loves the sound of that, so he says, I'm going to go there, I'll meet you all in five days, and then he Ian he asks for two more, so it's five or seven days, we're not yeah. sure yet. Yeah and then uh,
2: susan kind of impetuously pops off first um and she lands in a forest with strange sounds have you heard this before <laughs> and, uh, and she freaks out and screams it's like okay susan in a forest screaming yeah i never had that before <laughs>
3: <laughs> this and, time she has hands over her ears and she's yelling stop it go away
2: yep and we're at the end of the episode
3: next episode
2: the screaming jungle <laughs>
3: Episode 23, or episode 3 of The Keys of Marinus, The Screaming Jungle. The others show up, and Susan is there covering her ears and telling them all, warning them all, stay away. But they don't know what the hell she's talking about, because while she was covering her ears, the sound went away. So (laughs) she's looking like an idiot here. And she reveals that she she jumped early on purpose because she doesn't like to say goodbye. You know, a little interesting character aspect of mm-hmm.
4: her.
2: Maybe not a good strategy, though. But... <laughs>
3: yeah, so now
2: in this case where... So we have like five people here. You know, the doctor is gone because William Hartnell's on vacation. <laughs> uh, we have Ian, Altus, and... Sabitha, yeah, Sabitha, and Barbara and Susan. So Ian, Altus, and Sabitha decide to go and explore more and leave Barbara and Susan behind for their own safety or something. And Barbara and Susan have an interesting discussion about this because Barbara is a little irritated at Ian being protective of them. But Susan Mm. thinks, you know, it's not bad, and she kind of appreciates him doing that.
3: Yeah, so it's the... It's a timeless conflict, you know, the paternalism versus protection, you know, uh, what's too much and what's what's not enough. <laughs> and now we have, to me,
2: oh, God, <laughs> Barbara asked Susan to talk more about why she was screaming. <laughs> and my note here is, why, oh, God, why? <laughs> I do not want to hear more about Susan screaming. <laughs>
3: And it's—I actually wrote down a quote when she describes the sound she heard. She she calls it tapping and whirring, all mixed up with a lot of screeching. And uh, it occurred to me that uh, it's rather surprising that screeching would bother her at
4: all.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and also, really, what we heard was very downplayed. So the only reason we know it was supposed to be scary is because of the way Susan is acting, which yeah. is, you know, I guess fine. That's in the actor's favor. Uh, eventually, and I just stopped taking notes, eventually they stopped talking about her screaming. (laughs) And what happens? You know, while Barbara is off looking at something, a vine sort of crawls across (laughs) the area and and makes its way to Susan's leg. And so Susan screams again.
3: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. We cannot escape it. (laughs) (laughs) And Barbara comes over to help, and she thinks it must have just fallen on her. And I wrote down the quote from her: "It couldn't move by itself, you know, it couldn't." Which, coming from a lady who, like twenty minutes ago, killed a bunch of brain slugs and domes, you'd think <laughs> at some point she'd start expanding her notions of what's possible.
2: Well, and not only that, the entire previous story was about nobody believing Barbara when she was trying to tell them about what the reality was. And so yeah. now, she, and and again, I'm not the first person to think of this but now she immediately turns around and doesn't believe Susan's <laughs> so. yeah right, so barbara starts like trying to find a way through some vines and plants to see if she can see anything she parts some of them she sees a strange statue at the end of a of a hallway essentially and this statue is a statue but it has human arms sticking out of it And this comes back to the budget, right? Basically, they were supposed to have these arms that would close around someone who got near the statue and the designer, Ray Cusick, said, "Well, since we have no money to design mechanical arms, let's just stick human arms in there." <laughs> and after that, people have tried to excuse this by saying, "You know, there are different mythological and other and paintings and things that this resembles." But it was a budget thing, <laughs> 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 and it's not bad. You know, I, I don't see yeah, anything wrong with that. I
3: mean, it's you know, it's forgivable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting to me, at least, that this is a very This is a very archetypal scene because, you know, you look at the jungle, the temple, the tunnel that leads to an idol, and that's Mm -hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm -hmm. And, of Mm -hmm. course, that's based on the whole, uh, you know, cliffhanger serials that go back to the 30s and, you know, before that in writing. Uh, So it's, you know, they're drawing on some old, old old-time tropes here. Absolutely,
2: (laughs) absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the arms are forgivable, but here's not what's forgivable. <laughs> Barbara sees the key like glued onto the forehead of this statue, which is much higher than her. And she immediately runs to the statue, climbs up it, and starts trying to pry off this this key. So while she's climbing up this statue, trying to get to the key, Ian and company show back up again and they see what she's doing. And Ian yells at her, don't do it. And she's like, no, 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 I'm totally fine. I'm going to do this thing. And so, of course, as she's grabbing the key, (laughs) the statue human arms grab her. And the statue flips around and she
3: disappears (laughs) behind the wall. Another another one of the secret doors of Marinus. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And then the team
2: explores and they find the key on the ground. So now they have the key, but they don't have Barbara. Of all of them, Ian is the only one who cares about getting Barbara. And I'm going to mention, this is, again, a theme we've seen. I don't know. Maybe this is the third time where Barbara disappears and Ian is excited about getting her.
3: (laughs) And that's, I mean, that's understandable. Uh, I mean, especially if if Ian's a bachelor, uh, Barbara's (laughs) literally the only woman in the world.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That could be the reason. Now the team debates, they say, well, she had her travel dial, so maybe she used it to escape, and it would be, since we already have the key, it would be a waste of our time to try and find her. We should all just go to the next quest location. So everybody else starts to pop off. But then Sabifa, who was handed the key that they found, takes a look at it and realizes it's a fake. And she tells Ian that it's a fake. And we have a kind of weird thing here (laughs) where... Ian says, well, I guess you better travel to the next Quest location and let everyone know it's a fake, and I'll go find Barbara and the real key. Now, wouldn't it be good for him to have another person to help with this instead of sending them off?
3: Yeah, yeah, you would think so. I mean, (laughs) pretty much every time they've split up in the whole whole show so far has been, (laughs) yeah, you could argue against it. I don't (laughs) see why this should be any exception.
2: So Ian goes and intentionally gets hugged by the statue <laughs> and flips around the wall. And he comes into this room with some vegetation. We see a apparent statue of a knight with an axe.
3: Yeah, he looks a lot like the black light or black knight from uh, Monty Python yeah. uh, and
2: the Holy and the Holy Grail. And there's but, gonna be multiple Monty
3: Python references
2: as <laughs> we come along. So now Ian moves forward and he happens to step on a loose stone. And when the stone goes down, the statue very slowly and loudly moves the axe up to chop him. And in spite of all of the noise, Ian has no idea what's going on. (laughs) Barbara's on the other side of the room and she yells at him. And he rolls out of the way, and this very, very slow-moving axe comes down where he was, and he has escaped.
3: <laughs> uh described it as the worst trap ever. <laughs> <laughs> Although, if it had hit him, it probably would have left a mark. Yeah, yeah, if he <laughs>
2: hadn't listened to the noise and hadn't watched this thing, spending 30 seconds <laughs> trying to chop it. <laughs> uh, so then... Barbara and Ian spend a whole bunch of time looking at the plants in this room and not really doing much. <laughs> Ian kind of wanders off. A plant starts to creep down toward Barbara's shoulder, but nothing happens from that. <laughs> then we switch to a stranger in a room, and he opens a door that's behind Barbara and, and it disappears. She notices the open door. She walks into a hallway. So she doesn't stop. She doesn't get in. (laughs) She doesn't say anything. She just immediately walks into this suddenly open door because, you know, what could go wrong?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Ian had gone to look for something to bust the door down because it, it had been locked. And as soon as he left, the hermit came and opened it up.
2: Right, right. So she walks into this hallway and immediately gets trapped in a net that gets thrown around her. And she's on the ground, rolling around. And now we truly see the worst trap I've ever seen. Because I literally I had to stare at this to figure out what it was. Because you're, you're looking at these shot and there's sort of some sticks laying on a black background. And it takes a while to realize, oh, these are supposed to be spikes <laughs> coming down toward her.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I I recognized them pretty quickly, I think. But uh, yeah, they're they're interesting spikes because they're they're actually trident shaped. So somebody somebody took some time to make three prone spikes. So these
2: are coming down toward her very very slowly. So someday she's going to be impaled by these little <laughs> spikes. Meanwhile, Ian is outside. He hears her scream. And he finds a pick on the ground, uh, and he grabs it to help her out. Well, it turns out this pick has a chain attached to it. And when he grabs it, a set of prison bars come down behind him, so he can't move. Barbara is back in the room. She doesn't roll away. She doesn't do anything. She, She stays where she is, so the spikes can keep coming down very, very slowly toward her. And we see this man walk kind of back and forth once or twice, and finally he decides to uh, reset the trap, and she is safe. He frees Barbara, and she explains what they're doing. He doesn't believe her. He shows her her travel dial, and this guy, who is a kind of wise old man who talks very slowly, he takes her travel dial, and he says, Well, I'm going to check this. And if it was programmed in a very certain way, then I'll know that Arbitan sent you, and I can give you the key. And then he leaves, goes to another room. Suddenly, a plant is strangling him.
3: Well, first we see Ian escape from the predicament Mm -hmm. that, that he's in, and then we cut to the hermit who has stumbled right from being a crafty mastermind into being strangled by a vine.
2: <laughs> and I'm going to say, it's the worst plant strangling acting ever. <laughs> like, there's a tiny little vine that's barely hanging around his neck, and he's like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> uh, But Barbara and Ian manage to get to him and free him, and he tells him, it's coming again. The jungle is coming. When the whispering starts, it's death. <laughs> like, ah, what's he talking about? And he tells them he's the one who created all these traps to protect the key. Arbitan sent him here with the key, and he needed to protect it, so he created all the traps they've encountered.
3: Yeah, and he says, only those warned by Arbitan could avoid them. Uh, and uh, I don't recall from that first episode, I don't think Arbitan said word one about uh, the second stop has a lot of traps. You want to watch out for those.
2: Yeah, he wasn't too helpful. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I think as we find later, I mean, he sent a bunch of people to do this. So I think (laughs) basically Arbitan sits around waiting for people to show up and then sends them on this quest until they die. And then he (laughs) waits for the next, you know, suckers. Um, Which again is a Futurama (laughs) reference because of course the doctor in Futurama would put together a new crew every time his previous crew got killed on one of his quests. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, you say?
0: Uh, then
2: he's dying. Um I, I think he was dying from the strangling or something. I don't remember if something else happened. And he's just he, he mystically says D E three zero two. Um
3: yeah three oh two. So that's
2: that's their clue about how to get the, the marinus key, and then he's dead.
3: Yeah, he died of delayed strangulation. <laughs> yeah, it's, a,
2: it's a terrible thing. <laughs> So they go to the next room, and they find a safe, and they figure, well, of course, you know, DE302 must be the combination of the safe, and they try about five different versions of that, and it
3: doesn't work. Yeah, and the safe has (laughs) letters on the dial, but it doesn't have numbers, so they they improvise. They say, okay, the three must Mm -hmm. mean spin it three times, Mm -hmm. but nothing works. So they search
2: the room. They find a book of his biology experiments, uh, and then Ian reads something about a growth accelerator. So, so this guy created a growth accelerator. We'll see what that comes to mean. Then they hear the whispering.
3: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and one of them says it sounds like whispering, and it, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. sound like whispering.
2: Nope, nope, no. But it's the same sound Susan heard that drove her crazy at the beginning of this episode. And it turns out the jungle is closing in. So this guy has created this this growth accelerator, uh, and the jungle around is accelerating the growth, which means that the vines and everything are crashing through and trying to kill everybody in the room.
3: Yeah, Yeah, and uh, and the timing on this is really uh, a bit suspicious, I think, because this guy has had time to set up at least four or five elaborate traps He's installed himself a nice laboratory with bookshelves and the whole nine yards, and right when these new people show up to get the key is when everything just goes <laughs> to hell. So I don't know. I'm not mm. sure about the timing.
2: And the other funny thing about the jungle closing, <laughs> and, and maybe you couldn't have told on TVs at the time, but... The jungle is pushing through these tiny cardboard strips (laughs) that have been taped up. That's the
3: wall. (laughs) Yeah, they're supposed to look like it's boarded up or something, but uh, yeah, it's not the greatest thing. And while they're (laughs) rushing around trying to escape from
2: the jungle, they find these jars with chemical sequences written on them. And I think Ian realizes, oh, you know, DE302 or whatever was a chemical sequence. Find the jar with that sequence. (laughs) And Barbara does and grabs the key, and they pop out, and they're done with this story, which meant absolutely nothing.
3: (laughs) And it's worth mentioning, maybe not worth mentioning, but the labels on the bottles are all written in plain old English. And this isn't the first time that they've been able to read words, or we've been, the viewers have been able to read words written in an alien language, because Dalek City. Had the Geiger Cotter had a prominent sign that said Mm -hmm. danger on it. So apparently, whatever the TARDIS does to translate things also works in printed (laughs) Mm -hmm. text. And now
2: we have this kind of weird thing where Ian and Barbara have landed in a snowy place, and in two seconds, they are freezing like freezing solid, can't move. Uh, and that, and you know, they're they're clearly going to to die of this, yeah. and we have the end of the episode.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And after they were there ten seconds, like you said, uh, uh, they are, they're suddenly freezing. Barbara <laughs> says, "I can't move, Ian. I'm too cold." <laughs> like well, ten seconds. That must yep. be some yep. powerful cold. <laughs> The Snows of Terror. It begins where it left off last time with uh, Ian and Barbara in the snow. And at the end of last episode, uh, it had seemed like they had only been there for 10 seconds and uh, Barbara was already getting weary and cold and sleepy. But uh, I think actually that was just sort of a byproduct of the way it was edited. I think it was implied that they've been out there Hmm. for a while before before we see them. So she repeats that it's no good, she can't, she's tired, she must sleep. And Ian tries to uh, shake her awake, and she's out for the, down for the count. And then he immediately lies down right next to her and goes to sleep. <laughs> and that's when the titles come up over their sleeping bodies, and the fake snow that uh, looks to me like it's probably a real chore to clean it up.
2: <laughs> that was exactly my feeling because it's styrofoam and it's all over their hair. And you're thinking, <laughs> and then I was, then that got me to wondering, one of those things you don't think about since they are essentially, you know, filming this live is what they have to do to like clean that stuff out of their hair between scenes. You know, I have no oh, idea yeah. what's involved.
4: <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, and, and so... Uh, she wakes up to this Eskimo-like dude standing over her. Yeah, kind of a mountain man type. I yeah, and I, I, this time through um, is the first time it triggered a memory for me. Do you remember the show Grizzly Adams? I was a kid. I
3: remember the name of it. That's about all I remember.
2: I was obsessed with this show as
0: a kid. They call me Mad Jack, and if there's anybody in these mountains that knows the real story of James Adams. That'd be me. So I'm putting it down and writing just the way it happened in hopes of setting the record straight. Now my friend Adams was accused of a crime he didn't commit. So he escaped into the mountains, leaving behind the only life that he ever knew. Now that wilderness out there ain't no place for a greenhorn, and his chances of surviving Mighty slim. Weren't no time at all, for he was beaten down, ragged, and nearly stopped. <coughs> Long about then, he come upon a grizzly bear cub, all alone and helpless. Now, Adams knew that little critter couldn't survive without his help, so he started right down that cliff, risking his own life to save it. <laughs> now that cub took to Adams right off. And that was when he discovered he had a Special kind of way with animals. They just come right up to him like he was a natural part of the wilderness. But that bear cub, he was extra special. As he growed, he became the best friend Adams ever had, and together they became a legend.
2: So, uh, as we will see, this this dude uh, that she's encountered is the opposite of Grizzly Adams. <laughs> He's sort of the, the evil Grizzly Adams. And uh, yeah. the other memory I have is... When I was like eight or something, our teacher wanted all the students to write a note to the local TV station. You know, whatever note we wanted, we had to to write something to them. And Mm -hmm. so my note was a suggestion that they play Grizzly Adams every day. So that was Ah, a suggestion. Yeah, I'm not sure
3: they (laughs) took my advice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one thing before we go deeper. There's one other point that just came to me this morning about the snow. Uh, you'll note that the snow is not eating through Ian and Barbara. So, my theory, which is probably drastically overthinking the whole thing, is that the acid sea from the first episode mm. is probably an, an anomaly. It's probably like the Great Salt Lake <laughs> or something like that. You know, it's just yeah. a localized area. Uh,
2: there is a concept in fandom, especially Doctor Who fandom, called. Doyle versus Watson or Doyleism versus Watsonism, I think it is. Oh. And what it means is, you know, Watson was the fictional narrator of Sherlock Holmes stories, right? So if you're mm. a Watsonian, whenever you see something like this, you come up with an in-story reason for it. Mm. If you're a Doyleist, um you're looking at it from Arthur Conan Doyle's point of view as a writer. So so the example of this is when he killed off Sherlock Holmes. The Watsonist has the, you know, Sherlock Holmes died for this reason, etc. and the Doyleist says the writer was tired of writing these stories so he killed off Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah. So I bring this long thing up to say uh when you're trying to figure out why the snow is not acid, I'm thinking Because the writer had a cool idea in the first episode and it had nothing to do with anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So Barbara wakes up, sees this Eskimo-style, you know, evil Grizzly Adams dude standing over her, and she's still totally out of it, can barely shake herself awake. He finds the key on her and takes it. Uh, She falls back
3: into the snow, falls back asleep.
2: Next thing we know... We're in a hut.
3: Yeah, and it's a it's a nice little cabin. I thought. I mean, it's just little. It's 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 very straightforward. It's there's nothing specifically alien about it. You now that would make it distinctive to the planet uh, mm-hmm. Marinus. You know, I mean, you could play Red Dead Redemption, and <laughs> if you walked into this cabin, nothing at all would look out of place. And,
2: Anyway, I think one of our tropes is you have to make at least one video game reference every episode, <laughs> which is appropriate. I mean, I, I am also a big time gamer, but uh, uh, I'll leave those references for you. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara wakes up. Ian is apparently asleep on the floor and she's very cold. And we start with our creepiness here. On the one hand, he's helping her because he comes over and he starts rubbing her hand to warm her up. But the way he's rubbing mm. her hand is, you know. <laughs> and
3: yeah, he's, he's, he seems to be enjoying it a little. Although at this point, I, I still thought he was just a nice old mountain man, maybe a little out of touch. But uh, And I that, think Barbara I
2: thinks that because he says this is how you warm somebody up. And then when Ian wakes up, she goes over to him and starts rubbing him the same way. And I'm like, "Who oh boy. <laughs> so now, because we, we have this will they won't they thing with Ian and Barbara. And she's
3: now, you know, sensuously rubbing his arm. Um, <laughs> the mountain man, he says his name is Vasor. And uh, he says uh, he's out here alone and most men fear him, which uh, at the time I thought was sort of a self deprecating uh thing you know that that he's actually a big teddy bear uh but no that he's actually kind of a jerk (laughs)
2: well but you know well we will come to this he he may be a jerk but he also is doesn't seem to be the most powerful jerk at times
3: (laughs) yeah we will see later on that he's uh he's he's kind of got the bully syndrome where he gets away with what he can and as soon as somebody shows some strength against him he just collapses yep
2: and he says that it was there was a stranger who helped bring them to the hut because you know they were trying to figure out how he could bring two of them to the hut while they were unconscious and it's clear that it's their colleague altos and ian wants to go out and find him and he needs some warm clothing And this guy is not going to give up warm clothing, which now here I'm going to say, I'm not going to blame him. I mean, he's out in the middle of, you know, snowstorms and everything. And he doesn't have much. And suddenly this stranger wants to take off with a bunch of his valuable furs. And so I don't blame him for wanting a trade for that. Um, No, sure. And the only thing Ian has is this travel dial. So he trades that to him, which is obviously means Ian's pretty serious because that's his only way out of here.
3: Yeah. And in theory, maybe he could come back and and do the undo the trade later. Yeah, they don't. Right, really presumably
2: he thinks he's going to do that. Yeah, Barbara stays behind. Uh, you know, I don't know any women in my life who'd be like, "Yeah, I'm going to stay here with this weird creepy guy." But I guess she hasn't quite tuned into that yet.
3: Yeah. He does really at first. He comes across uh, fairly pleasant all in all. Yeah. Uh, To me,
2: except at this point, as soon as Ian leaves, he (laughs) locks the door and he goes back to her and he starts like rubbing her shoulders or something. And he's very, very physical with her. And so it's pretty clear, you know, what's up.
3: Yeah. He puts his hand on her shoulder. He says, Now we're alone. And, uh, It's a little little bit uncomfortable. He doesn't leave his hand there on her shoulder long, but uh, it's still uh, a little creepy. And then uh, shortly after that, he says, we must fatten you up, eh? Which, <laughs> now that's really starting to uh, get creepy. And uh, even at this point, I was thinking, okay, this is misdirection. Uh, he's actually <laughs> going to turn out to be just a, you know, clueless mountain man who uh, is un- unaccustomed to dealing with people, you know. So now, honestly, I think
2: we're switching into Cormac McCarthy stuff here <laughs> where, <you> know, <laughs> remember in the road, this father and his son are traveling, and they reach this house, and they find out that you know they're keeping this basement full of people where they eat their body parts one by one <laughs> no you
4: know, nice. so when he
2: says he's going to fatten her up, you know it kind of reminds you of that,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah and uh, and of course, since the Red Dead Redemption analogy had already occurred to me by this point. There's all kinds of stuff like that just littered throughout (laughs) those games. So, so yeah, my, my thoughts were rapidly taking a turn for the dark also.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, so we get, we're outside and Ian finds Altos unconscious. And as he's, uh, you know, turning him over and figuring out what's up, he realizes he's been tied up. Weird little thing here. He is, we'll see. He doesn't, realize what that must mean for a bit um but we then we're back to the hut and well his back is turned Barbara's kind of looking through things and she opens a drawer and she finds a whole bunch of travel dials and Marinus keys yeah and she you know gets upset asks him what this is all about he says it's all on the up and up he's been trading food and supplies for these she doesn't believe him so finally she's starting to figure out that maybe he's not the most trustable guy
3: yeah, and also at the beginning of this scene he had uh, he had said uh about the door that he had locked earlier. He says <laughs> that door will keep anything out or in. <laughs> <He was laughs> so say he doesn't have the the best date sense, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh oh, uh, one thing I want to mention about Ian, Ian and Altos which kind of gives the lie to the notion that this is a super cold area of Marinus. Ian, when he goes out with his fur cloak that he traded for, he goes out with bare arms. And when he gets to Altos, uh, he's got bare legs. So neither of them, I mean, they seem to be surviving quite well, despite all the
0: cold,
3: Mm -hmm. supposedly. (laughs) Anyway, I said I'd throw that in there.
2: Yeah, and creepy guy keeps getting creepier. When Barbara wants to know what's up about Ian, he says, you don't kill anybody in this country. The cold and the wolves do that. And this seems a little odd. What's he saying here? And she's like, wait, you just wait till Ian gets back. And he says, What makes you think Ian will get back? He doesn't know what's in that bag I gave him. And then yeah. he does a mine, as I wrote here, a maniacal laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and it reminded me, and this happens again later, it reminded me of the, the movie The Muppets with Chris Cooper as the bad guy. Did you see that?
3: Many, many years ago, I think. Yeah. So he, the
2: Chris Cooper's the bad guy trying to take over the Muppets theater. And he has a couple of these, you know, uh, Uh, puppet uh, uh, evil guys with him. And whenever he says something really bad, then he'll say maniacal laugh. And then his puppets will do a maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. Maniacal
1: laugh. Maniacal laugh.
4: Maniacal laugh. Maniacal (laughs)
2: laugh. Just reminded me of that. So we get to see pretty quickly what he's talking about. We go back out to the snow, and Ian, uh, trying to help out Altos, opens the bag that he was given, and it turns out it's full of raw meat. And mm-hmm. they don't explain this for a bit, you know. Um, uh, we'll see it in a bit, but then you start hearing wolf sounds, and you realize, oh, there's wolves all over. He's talked about that, so he gave them raw meat so that, you know, wolves would would smell it and come after them. Right. One thing I'll mention here, by the way, is... Uh, for all the bad uh, visual effects in these stories because of how little budget they had for it, they had some really good sound. I mean, I, I actually think that the when they're outdoors in the snow, it's pretty believable that they're in snowstorms. You
3: know? Oh, yeah. And the raw meat was convincing. It looked like raw meat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and at this point in the episode, I actually had a note that uh, said, so far this episode is a keeper and uh and well uh, i'll i won't i won't spoil my final judgment on it but uh, figured i'll mention yeah. it now
4: <laughs> okay <laughs> uh
3: so
2: back to the cabin and now it's getting really disturbing in fact there's no pretense at this point he's after her he's chasing her around she's trying to hold him off with a poker from the fireplace and he actually says you know well, you can't hold that poker forever. Eventually, you're going to drop it. And and it's just clear he's just waiting to, to have his way with her. Um, yeah. And while he's chasing her around, he actually knocks her down. Ian and Altos bang on the door. He has knocked Barbara down. Then they're fighting more. She bites him pretty viciously in the hand. And then she goes and unlocks the door and lets them in.
3: Yeah, and uh, when 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 she bites his hand, it's really uh it's it's a little bit amusing because uh it just that one bite sends him reeling across the room, <laughs> which <laughs> which gives her the opportunity to open the door.
2: Well, you know, it could hurt. It could hurt. Oh, well, sure. So now we switch to Susan and Sabitha in a cave and I'm going to say, and, you know, I don't blame him. He had no money, but it's clear he had about 30 cents for this because this is a cave that is supposed to have ice walls. And the designer used cellophane for that, but it's not like s- some clever use. They literally just slapped cellophane on the walls, and that's supposed to be ice.
3: You know. Yeah, there there, there are some scenes where it looks pretty, pretty neat to me. Uh but there are some that were a dozen and somewhere it's just too obviously shiny, you know. You'd think the real ice would be a little less 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 pronounced. <laughs> so I guess what happened was Sub- Susan and Sabitha
2: had met the Eskimo dude, and he had brought them to this cave and then left them there and, and you know, took their their key and everything and, and their travel dials. And they are not quite sure how to get out They're, They can't remember what direction to go. In the meantime, um, the crew enters, pushing the hut guy in front of them and looking for them. And this is where we see, as we were talking about earlier, that this guy, you know, on the inside is, is nobody. I mean, he is he's like, well, please let me go. Will you let me go back? I mean, this is a big guy. He's bigger than any of them. And he is acting, you know, completely defeated. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and, and Ian doesn't maybe he has the fireplace poker, but Ian doesn't really have anything special to boss him around with. Uh and the guy's a trapper, so he can probably handle a knife reasonably well. Yeah. Um, but uh but he just crumbles like a house of cards. <laughs> they reach a a rope
2: bridge which is the most pathetic rope bridge ever uh, something that uh, you know there there's an interview from the designer Ray Cusick that we're going to be using later and he talks about this and he said it was the this bridge was the one time that Verity Lambert even called him out and said this is so bad <laughs> what are you going to do about it
4: uh,
3: after after maybe 10 seconds after i saw it and they uh, Susan and Sabitha start planning how they're going to cross it and whatnot. Uh, it, it, I had a flashback to the chasm jumping uh, <laughs> in the uh, Daleks <laughs> episodes. The same, uh, same sort it, of it, situation. It
2: gets even more so later on, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> when they're coming back. We'll, we will get there. So, yes, yeah, Susan and Sabisa cross this rope bridge, and then they find a room which has the key, the Marinus key, frozen in a huge block of ice. And it's surrounded by three either statues or frozen soldiers. We don't really know what they are. They look the same as as someone we saw in an earlier episode. So they all have like axes and swords, but they're frozen in place.
3: Yeah, I think it's just a repaint of the armor that that Tin Woodman guy was using in the in the <laughs> yeah. temple. Yeah, you know, he was the trap.
2: And I'll say, I don't think this armor looks that bad, actually. It's uh, uh, all right. It actually reminded me not only of Monty Python, who we'll, who we'll talk about later, but also in The Last Jedi, there is the fight in that room where everyone's wearing red and stuff toward toward the end, and and there's many reasons why that's a very problematic fight, but it does look uh, visually compelling, and th- hmm. these guys kind of look like the same people. Hmm. I will leave that as an exercise for for people to go check out. <laughs>
3: Oh, and, and these, uh, these knights standing here, these are presumably who Fasor has been insisting are demons, which uh, is making him panic and not want to go on. Right. Food.
2: He had said earlier that there are demons in here somewhere. And we go back to the crew that was looking for Susan and, and the girl, and they come to that bridge and they cross over it. All but Ian. Ian stays with the evil guy. But then Susan and Sabitha come running out and meet the other folks on the other side, and Ian is suddenly overcome with the need to run across the bridge and meet them and leave the evil dude on the other side. So, of course, what does the evil dude immediately do? (laughs) He uh, destroys the bridge, or he at least drops it. Yeah. So they can't get back. And then another maniacal laugh, and he explains, "There's no, they're going to die here now. They can't get back.
0: (laughs) Basil, wait! Now... You wait! Wait there forever! There's no other way out!
3: <laughs> I had been thinking this was where another one of those maniacal laughs came in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and and I think in that scene where we first see the block of ice with the key frozen in it, I think that may be the moment for me when the episode jumped the shark. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> Somewhere around this point. So we're going to officially recommend half an episode. Is
2: that right? <laughs> uh, wait till you see the ice. Stop watching. And here we have a funny thing. So the crew goes into this room with the ice and the and the frozen warriors, and Barbara finds this pipe and a valve, and it was supposed to be some kind of mysterious alien contraption. But they just stuck a norm because they had no money. They just stuck a normal yeah. pipe and valve in there, and so the really funny thing is, she says, "Ian, look, there's this thing here. I, I think it might be a valve, and it's it's yeah, it's something you would do your your garden thing. With.
3: <laughs> I've got about six of them in my basement. <laughs>
2: uh, and I, it's kind of funny that they didn't just change the line or something. I don't know why they why they went with that. Um, and it and it has warm water. So the whole puzzle to this room is you need to, to <laughs> spend two seconds finding the pipe <laughs> that has warm water.
3: <laughs> uh,
2: it's connected to a volcanic spring, they assume. And so she opens the valve to let the water come out. Again, you know, smart thing to do, right? You have a room with these strange uh, frozen creatures in it. You're waiting for the ice to melt. So everybody's going to leave for a little while to to let whatever happens in that room happen.
3: And this is what Arbatan set up. He he came here, set up the tank full of water, and you know, stationed these knights around it. And uh uh, you know, Arbatan I think was just a crazy old man. <laughs> and in the middle of caves in a mountain,
2: like how the hell are you gonna come across this? <laughs> While they're waiting for the ice to melt. Ian and Altus are outside the room creating a styrofoam bridge. Since the rope bridge got dropped, they need something. So they take these pieces of styrofoam, which are supposed to be uh, raw, uh, raw stalagmites or something. Uh, yeah, I know, think maybe
3: to... they were supposed to be icicles. I'm not yeah. sure. And the funny thing is, the
2: uh, like they're pretty large, and the ends and the they're mostly painted, so they look like something, whether it's rock or or ice but the ends of them that they flash by the camera, they didn't bother to paint. So it's just styrofoam. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as we're learning, I think in, in this episode, there's nothing styrofoam can't do. <laughs> um, it can be snow. It can be a bridge. <laughs> so they create this styrofoam bridge um, uh, across the chasm. And they then find that the ice has melted. The key is sitting there and, completely by surprise the frozen knights around it wake up (laughs) scare Susan she screams
3: yeah and they're uh, they're revived but they're kind of sleepy still (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, they fight in slow motion
2: so everybody's able to run out Um, Susan starts trying to crawl over the styrofoam bridge and she takes her time (laughs) This, this is where we're really in the chasm jumping from the Daleks Episode. So she's going to spend a couple minutes crawling across this bridge, you know, five feet. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> in the meantime, Ian collapses a tunnel behind him to trap the knights, but they're sort of
3: fighting their way through it. Yeah, and he did. That's one thing that he didn't just pull out of nowhere because he yeah. did foreshadow it earlier when they went through the arch. He said, oh, this rock is supporting the ice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I should have known then that, that, that rock <laughs> yeah. was going to be gone sooner or later. Yep uh susan
2: travels an inch at a time but eventually she gets across and thankfully instead of making everybody else cross the styrofoam bridge she just reconstructs (laughs) the uh the rope bridge puts it up again and then the knights break through and i will i have to put in the sound here one of them falls in classic wilhelm scream style into the (laughs) chasm And all of a sudden, we're back to the hut. The entire crew is back at the hut, and they break in. Uh, Apparently, you know, the lock on this door, either he forgot to use it or or it's not very good. And he is there evilly going over his stolen goods. (laughs) And I had a question here, which is, okay, the first time, When they subdued him, when, you know, when they saved Barbara from him, why didn't they take all this stuff? She already knew about all the dials (laughs) and all the keys. They should have just taken them then. But they left them in the hut. So, okay. I guess they figured they were going to come back to the hut and get them. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, So they have a fight and get all the stuff back in about two seconds. And they're they're ready to pop off. They're all about to twist their, their travel dials. And all of a sudden, the evil guy grabs Susan and says, if you leave, I'm going to kill her. Um, but he backs up for, you know, I, I guess maybe it's irrational that he would back away from them. But he backs up to the door. And in the meantime, the frozen knights have made their way here. They uh, they suddenly sped up somewhere along the way and, and covered a large amount of distance and got to the hut. And one of them shoves his uh, sword through the door. And that stabs the evil guy.
3: Fortunately, it doesn't stab Susan. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So he's no longer a problem, but the knights are a problem now. Right.
2: Yeah, they're breaking through the door. So they all pop off with their travel dials and, and leave him to his fate. And this is interesting because we have a really big change uh, in situation and environment here. All of a sudden, we have Ian showing up in a room with glass cases. There's some Nazi-looking guy who's dead on the floor. He checks him out. Uh, he notices a Marinus key in one of the cases, and then he's trying to get in the case to get to it. And we have one of those, those classic TV and movie things where someone whacks him on the back of the neck and he immediately passes out Yeah. Whoever knocked him out, uh, puts a mace in his hand, uh, and then steals the key, which triggers an alarm. And yeah. it's the end of the episode. Yeah. He
3: wraps Ian's hand around the mace, uh, uh you know, for framing him, which as mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah. Um, and I, that's yeah. a pretty
2: compelling ending to a half-crappy episode.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they ended it on a high note. Um, and I, you know, I had such high hopes for, for this episode. I, it was really, until until they really started exploring the cave, I was really into it. And uh, I, it just kind of fizzled for me after that. I, uh, yeah, it, it, Things started being a little more... Obviously wacky and incomprehensible. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd say this one, and I, I'd give a miss. Yeah,
2: well, fortunately, I think it looks up from here. We'll see. We'll see what you think. Nah. So, next episode: Sentence of Death. We see the theme that we saw previously, where where Ian gets knocked out and somebody sets him up for framing. And he wakes up and immediately encounters Teron, interrogator of the Guardian Division, sitting there waiting for him. A couple things about this. One, as, as it goes on, I really like this actor. He he's really, uh, seems really smart, uh, has, has some presence. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I kind of warmed up to him. Even though, you know, he's wearing a Nazi uniform sort of thing. <laughs> and here we have the first Easter egg, uh, uh, that Terry Nation would put in most of his stories going on from here on. This Terry Nation is Terry Nation. This character is Teron. Ah. <laughs> and so he basically has a Terron style name in all of his Doctor Who stories after this. <laughs> Not, you know, the most witty humor, but there it is. Um, and I'm going to... Uh, Mention something that I'll bring up again as we go along, which is, as, as you happen to know, Guy, one of my many little obsessions is how to handle yourself if you end up in a police interrogation. And I've sent you many late night links <laughs> about this yeah. uh, against your will, possibly. Oh. And I'll have to say this story is actually amazingly good at understanding and covering how to respond to a, to a legal situation where you might get in trouble. In particular, we see here as Teron asks him in questions and he's explaining himself a very good example of how telling the truth isn't necessarily going to help you. <laughs> yeah. When someone's trying to find you guilty, whatever you say, they're going to find a way to use that. And this we'll see a little more of this as we go along. Um, but Teron's biggest concern is that. They scanned the room and, you know, there was no way to get out of the room without being scanned. And that micro key, the Marinus key, did not leave the room. He wants to know where Ian hid it. So he thinks that Ian killed this other guy and hid the key somewhere. And Ian is saying, no, I was knocked out. I have no idea what happened. And then Ian makes an assumption about the legal system here. He says, you know, you're going to have to prove me guilty. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Terrence says, nope, you're already guilty. (laughs) (laughs) The burden of defense is entirely yours. You must prove your innocence beyond the shadow of a doubt. (laughs) Yeah. So we can guess how often people here are found innocent. (laughs) <laughs> this reminds me, I think it was the Soviet Union. Yeah. The, um, I, I, a long, long time ago, I read something about their legal system and it really was basically this. It was basically, you are guilty. And in the rare case that you were found innocent in a trial, they would just try you again because <laughs> <it, laughs> they had no concept of not being able to do that of, of double jeopardy. So, yeah you know, the prosecutors would just treat that as a practice and try you again until you were found guilty. So,
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so this kind of system has existed on this. Planet. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, we switched to a couple of days later and one thing I'll note, there's no real explanation for it. Ian was the only person who showed up in this room. None of the other crew did. We don't know where they went. Then we switched to a couple of days later. Oh, there's and the, one little mm-hmm. bit oh, of yeah.
3: dialogue I want to mention while we're in this scene. Uh, uh, when Taron says, you're going to need to find yourself a lawyer, Ian says, I do know someone if I can find him. Taron says, who is he? And here's a little joke. Ian mm-hmm. says, who? He's a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so a little little reminder mm-hmm. that you're watching Doctor Who. Yeah, good one. You know, I didn't even
2: really notice that. So um, Okay, so now we switch to a couple days later, the rest of the crew, except for the doctor, because uh, you know William Hartnell was on vacation up to now, is waiting in a waiting room to to meet Ian. As a prisoner, Ian comes out and they're talking about what to do, and they're wondering where the doctor is. And all of a sudden, the doctor comes through the door, and I will tell you. You could do a before and after from when he was on this before till his vacation. He is looking good. He clearly <laughs> uh, got energized and, and refreshed on his vacation. <laughs> yeah, he's full of beans throughout this whole episode. Yeah, and uh, and here's <laughs> this is hilarious, right? Um, they're like, "Well, we need a lawyer. What do we do?" And he's like, "Well, guess what? I've spent the last few days studying the legal system because I knew this was going to come up." And and Ian says, "Well, I need a man to defend me." And the doctor says,
3: "I am that man." <laughs> <laughs> and he clutches his lapel and he stands there looking like a statue of a hero. You know, it's just yeah. Yeah, very uh, li- little hammy, but it's fun. So he's I'm, very I proud of himself, it. you know. And yeah. well, you know, I guess he
2: did his homework and and uh, you know had to study their entire legal system <laughs> in
4: a couple of days. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Apparently, they don't have a process here of, you know, turning a person into a lawyer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then we immediately go to the trial. And the first thing that happens is these judges come out of a back room. And and before I say anything, I'm going to say, what are your impression of these
3: judges? <laughs> I, I I thought they looked like the Pharisees from Jesus Christ Superstar, if you've <laughs> ever seen that. They're... Okay
4: because they're wearing they these
3: like. long long hats with ribbons coming off of them.
2: Um I someone described them as, you know, the things that you put on the end of a turkey or a chicken when you're when you're cooking
4: it. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: um, the other part for me though, is especially once they sit down is again, Monty Python. Their beards are straight out of Monty Python's Life of Brian, especially the part where the women are dressed up as men. Um, with the fake beards uh, glued on, because one of them has a beard that's not quite totally staying on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, these judges are are a treat. And uh, they're all ready to execute Ian. I mean, sure, they'll have a trial, but three days later they're going to execute him, because obviously he'll be found guilty, since everyone is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the doctor demands time, because how can he possibly defend him without looking at every aspect of the case and the judges, and what you can take is, you know, apparently they found him very persuasive because everyone is surprised when they say, okay, we're going to give you two
3: days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> better than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, uh, may mm-hmm. be, it may be interesting to point out that the the seal of the, presumably the seal of the city or the seal of the justice system, whatever, is uh, the seal is basically a swastika, Um, it's, it, it doesn't have the, Mm -hmm. the bend at the end of the arm is not real long, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely swastikas. So that's kind of interesting.
2: Yeah. And again, Terry nation, I mean, the Daleks were clearly Nazi analogs and you know, this clearly is too. So yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And we'll see more of it in the future. They're all happy that they got this two days. And one of the things the doctor does is send Altos and Sabitha to study the history of all the murder trials that have ever been done in the libraries. They said, they haven't had a lot of these. It won't take you too long. <laughs> and then we get a scene of them in a library, you know, looking at a book and writing some notes and putting yeah. it up. It'll never come to anything in this, but it's just kind of amusing that they could, you know, that two non-lawyers uh, who know nothing about this um, can can spend a couple of days, you know, learning everything there is to know about about murder trials. <laughs>
3: Well I, th- I think the doctor I think the doctor gives them three hours to do this research. Okay, even better. <laughs> <laughs> now this part is pretty cool. Uh, we go back to the scene of the crime
2: where Ian was found and the other guy was dead, and you know the interrogator Ter- Teron, is there, and he tells he tells him the whole thing about the scans. There's no way the key left the room. Everybody was scanned. And then he leaves and the doctor works with Barbara and Susan to recreate the crime. And he does it rather brilliantly. You know, he he has everybody stand in certain places and assumes what happened and and everything. And everything that he assumes, you know, is in fact what happened. Once they've recreated the whole crime, he says he knows where the key is, but he's not going to say yet. And this comes back to my thing about how to deal with, you know, being in an interrogation or being interrogated the doctor explicitly says he understands that if he tells people where the key is right now, they're just going to use that as evidence against Ian. Mm -hmm. They're just going to say, well, he put it there. Right. So he knows that he has to keep his mouth shut until he has more information so that he doesn't accidentally actually make Ian seem even more guilty. Right. And this is very valid. This is very true, uh, in reality, uh, especially in, in the United States. So, um, hmm. He, you know he in fact might not be a bad lawyer <laughs> <laughs> all right off my soapbox and then he sends Barbara and Susan on a task uh, he wants them to interview the first guard who was on the scene because when they reconstructed the whole thing what they came to the conclusion of was whoever c- said he was first on the scene that was the person who did it
3: right and it was the relief guard is the doctor's theory which is would explain how he had been able to get in because he was there to relieve the previous guard. Right, right. And so he
2: wants them to go and interview this guy and see what they can find out. They talked, uh, the, the guy they're trying to find is not there in the apartment, but his wife is, and they talk to her for a bit. And then the guard shows up, his name is Aiden, and he starts to throw them out. And Susan, you know, being the young girl they're playing around, says they know where the key is hidden. Um, and the guard immediately does what I was saying. He uses that against Ian and says, oh, Ian must've put it where it is. You know, we're now we're going to use that against him.
3: And then he throws them out of the room. Before he does that though, he nearly trips up. I mean, he does, he does trip up, but he, he, he covers it up. You know, he, he, he doesn't say anything that's legally admissible as a confession, but, uh, uh, he really gives away a little bit of, uh, you know, his. Do you remember what he said or was it? I don't remember. I just mm-hmm. I just made a note that he had he had tripped up when they first surprised mm-hmm. him with one of the facts. He uh mm-hmm. uh he he reacts, you know, and blurts out a couple ill chosen words and then, then he clams up and changes <laughs> tack.
2: Right. Yeah, and then he throws them out and they immediately bend down and listen at the keyhole and hear him smacking his wife around, so that's not too yeah. great because he's mad at her for letting them in. Yeah. And we are now at the trial where they're doing the second try at finding Ian guilty. Um, the prosecution proves that the mace was in Ian's hand. They have something better than fingerprints. It was I think it was called psychometrics um, that I can show the last person. Psychometry. Psychometry, yeah. right. That can show the last person who held an item.
3: Yeah, they don't even know what fingerprints are. <laughs> <laughs> they're just, the term baffles them. And
2: uh, the doctor then starts his defense and he makes the, you know, startling claim the murderer is in this chamber, but not the person who's under arrest. (laughs) Yeah. And the judges want him to prove this assertion. And so he brings up Sabitha as a witness and Sabitha claims she has the key. She says the key was given to her by Aiden, the relief guard. And here's where Aiden really gives himself away. He says, but she can't mm. have found it. I, you know, and then realizing he screwed up, he runs. And he gets surrounded by people and he starts to confess. He says, they made me do it. And then he's suddenly shot. Uh, and there's a whole group of people there. We don't know who shot him. There's a gun on the ground. Interesting thing here. There are people, I, I don't know if it was at the time or later, but there are people who consider this a somewhat tasteless recreation Of jack ruby shooting lee harvey oswald because that happened right before this Mm, you know jfk had been assassinated so this would so this is really really reminiscent of it it's it's a bit hard to avoid
3: yeah yeah i could i could see that yeah i mean it's a famous picture the the, uh, that shooting Mm. Hmm. yeah i could see that the doctor explains
2: he'd played a little trick on everyone what Sabitha had wasn't the actual key. It was the fake key they had found a couple episodes ago. And this whole thing was just to get Aiden to expose his guilt. Yeah. They now take a break from the trial because they want to test the gun that killed the guard to see who was holding it. And in the meantime, they send Aiden's wife home because she's hysterical.
3: And the doctors have given her Obliviator Drugs.
2: You know, I could use those sometimes. <laughs> and then we're back in the trial again later. The judge starts out by saying Ian's guilt is now even more obvious. So he's a real, <laughs> real <laughs> neutral character there. And the prosecutor was actually kind of clever because he says, you know, Aiden's last words were they made me do it. So the prosecutor says what I think any actual prosecutor would say. He was talking about the doctor. And Ian and the crew, they made him do this. Mm -hmm. And the judges said, yep, he's guilty. We're done. (laughs) And the doctor, you know, wants more time. And they're like, nope, no point to that. It would just (laughs) delay us getting to kill him. And here's the kind of tragic part. You know, the doctor has an opportunity for a closing statement, even though they've already decided to kill him. And he just says he doesn't have anything. Yeah. And then, Bar- um, as as things are closing up, Barbara is given a note, and it says there will be another death if you disclose where the key is hidden. Outside of the courtroom, she gets a call, and these phones are interesting. We'll see them a couple of times. I actually think they look pretty good. They're these sort of tubes with, um, you know, with speaker holes on each end. Mm-hmm. For the time, they were pretty futuristic. Yeah, they've got a, got
3: a number of buttons on them, too, I think.
2: Yeah. Uh, so like she picks up dial. the phone, or someone gives her the phone, and you know it's Susan saying, "I need to speak to Miss Wright," and then she says, "They're going to kill me," and it's the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, decent cliffhanger. Yeah, and, you job. know,
3: I think pretty good episode overall. Nice murder mystery. Yeah, this was a this was a entertaining to me overall. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if I'd recommend it or not. I actually didn't, that didn't come to a final conclusion. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. I'll say, <laughs> sure, go ahead and watch it. Why not?
2: Okay, interesting. Okay. Uh, next up, the final episode, The
3: Keys of Marinus. So, episode 26, Keys of Marinus, starts off with a recap of the last scene of the previous episode where Barbara gets a phone call. From Susan, who has been kidnapped and uh, is being held under threat that she'll be killed if Barbara reveals where the key is hidden, uh, which the doctor says he knows where the key is hidden, uh, but he hasn't revealed it. Uh, Then the titles come up over Barbara looking troubled, and this actually, uh, this little title scene where she's just standing there looking worried... Um, it, uh, it sort of brought home to me that I'm, I'm starting to get more fond of all the characters. Mm. I mean, the the doctor was a fun character from the start and Susan was kind of fun in her own (laughs) weird way. Um, but Ian and Barbara at the start of the series, um, they struck me as just kind of a little on the bland side, but Mm. having gone through all these episodes since, uh, you know i'm starting to see more of their personalities and the the characters strengths and weaknesses and also the the actors different abilities um mm-hmm. so so th- that was a you know in the, in that scene i think was where i realized i really am liking uh ian and barbara as, as you know they're 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 not the showmen that the doctor is you know he, he's kind of you know stands out in a crowd but uh, but they're, they're good. They're, mm-hmm. They work well. And whoever cast them, I think, had uh, good judgment. Absolutely. So Barbara and company
2: go to the guard's wife, Aiden's wife, to get more information. You know, she's very distraught. Her husband was just killed. And they have a whole conversation with her. She's not helpful. Um, but toward the end, she says, you must be sick with worry since you spoke with Susan.
3: Yeah and i uh, i i caught this and i'm not the uh great mystery solver of all time and and <laughs> as soon as she said it i thought oh how did she know that right. in fact it seemed i was so surprised that i caught it that i was just i i started thinking well maybe when they first came in maybe there was part of the discussion that we didn't see where they had already discussed that uh, but no that turns out to be the whole key to everything yeah yep.
2: <laughs> so they leave, you know. The wife is distraught. They leave. They haven't figured this out yet. And the the second they leave, the wife is smiling mm-hmm. and giggling. <laughs> she doesn't quite do a maniacal yeah. laugh,
3: but pretty close. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a real villainous little scene there. And uh, and this actress, uh, Kala, is the character's name. Uh, uh, she, she's pretty good. I, I I had thought in the previous episode, uh, you know, she only popped up for a minute or two and I, I remember thinking oh she's kind of fun you know it'd be mm-hmm. nice if they could find a way to work her in some more and uh then they did that in a big way so and and I will nice. say uh, early, it's probably
2: because the producer was a woman early Doctor Who actually had pretty good stuff for women aside from Susan and interestingly enough even when there are better stories and everything later they kind of take a, a dive there a bit but we will we will mm. cover that as as we get there all right. So not only is she smiling and giggling and pretty much, you know, rubbing her hands together. Um, she then walks to the back of the room and opens the door where Susan has been tied up and is hidden. So yeah. this, uh, this uh, what would you say her name was? Kala. Yeah, so Kala here is a real piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> and then she gets a call. And whoever's on the other end tells her that, to kill Susan. Kala's caller
3: tells her to kill
2: Susan. (laughs) Right. And we switch back to the hallway. Barbara's talking with the others when Barbara suddenly realizes what she said about, you know, how could she have known that we talked with Susan? We switch back to Kala approaching Susan with a gun to kill her. And I think she's doing a little monologuing. (laughs) And, of course, uh, Barbara and company burst in and save Susan at the last moment.
3: Actually, they snuck up on her, if yeah. I remember right. That's so true. So they, they did a good job of that.
2: And then we switch to what I think is uh, another really well done scene. Uh, the doctor is sitting on a bench outside the courtroom, and he is devastated by his loss. You know, he he had presented himself as he was going to be this brilliant lawyer and savior, and it didn't work. And he clearly is
3: is really upset. Yeah, he's just uh he's just sitting on a bench uh, kind of mopey. It's a, I, 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 it's an interesting room because it almost looks seems like a security office, but you know, it's it's like the ante room to the court, but they also have the evidence cupboard mm. in here mm. and a, a security desk of some sort. So, multi-purpose room.
2: Let's say they didn't have much room for sets, so they needed to put it all in one space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So while he's sitting there, the prosecutor comes out and shakes his hand and tells him what a good job he did. And he says, but you did a better job. <laughs>
3: yeah. And
2: for the doctor to say someone else did a better job is a pretty big statement.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He does have an ego on him.
2: Yep. Then we watch uh, the evidence from the crime uh, being put in a cupboard. So that includes the mace and other items. You know, basically they're, they're wrapping up this case. They're putting away the evidence.
3: Yeah, and the the camera kind of lingers on it. Yeah, you know, they're putting some papers in there and the mace, which was the murder weapon. And uh, uh, I, I didn't I didn't pick up on why the the camera was lingering as it was, mm. but but very shortly that is all revealed. <laughs> the doctor, he's still determined he's going to find new evidence and reopen the case, but hopefully pretty fast because Ian has been shown the ticking clock that uh, yeah. Literally, Uh, they have have a ticking clock on the wall. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't have a lot of time left on it. But Barbara calls Teron and summons him to Kala's place where they uh, promise that he will find out uh, the truth. Back at the courthouse, Teron comes out of the interrogation room. Some time has passed while he gathered up Kala and brought her back there. And uh, unfortunately... She says under interrogation that her accomplice was Ian.
2: Yep, she's uh,
3: going to be evil to the end. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think her and the guy in the hut, you know, would be a good pair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then Susan says she overheard the person who talked to the wife, to call on the phone, saying that he was going to collect the key. And you see the doctor gets an idea. Because the doctor has said all along he knows where the key is, he just hasn't told anybody. Mm-hmm. So now we switch to a night scene. The room is very dark. Same
3: room. Well, I, I want to mention before you go on, when the doctor realizes this, he's just uh he's just delighted. I mean, he just <laughs> he just uh, perks right up and he gets all energetic and bouncy. It's a it's a fun little scene, actually.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. So then we switch to the same room at night. Um, presumably nobody's there. And someone with a hood on comes through the door and goes to the evidence locker and starts to open it.
3: And it, it's it's in keeping with this whole justice system they have that uh, the prosecutor, which spoiler, it's the prosecutor, uh, <laughs> that he has a key to the evidence locker, <laughs>
4: right, right?
3: Not something you would really desire in a in a uh, you know, Western-style democracy justice system. Yeah. <laughs> but on Marinus, that's what it is.
2: So once he opens the locker, he gets grabbed. Turns out to be, as you said, the prosecutor, who—the funny thing here is he was, like, wearing a bag over his head, but he was still wearing his prosecutor uniform, so I don't think anybody <laughs> was going to be fooled. Um And then the doctor shows that the key had been hidden inside the mace. Uh, You could open up the mace. And (laughs) the funny thing here is it's not like the mace was hollow or anything. There was a, you know, micro key um, space uh, thing in there
3: for for it to fit into. (laughs) Yeah, it was very, uh, very tightly fit. (laughs) Yeah. The the mace was never scanned is how it got Mm. out. They scanned the people coming and going, but they didn't scan right and
2: presumably I mean even if it had been like it was encased in metal and everything so might not have detected it
3: yeah that could be oh and this is where Ian uh, says thank heaven you remembered reading Mm Puro you know the Greek skeptic philosopher and the doctor says reading what are you talking about I met the man (laughs) that was kind of cute yep Okay, so now they've got all the keys.
2: Uh, they pop off, and we're back to where we started this whole story at. You know, so they're they're hoping to find Arbitan. And... Oh,
3: this is this is where they're using the dials. Then that's what. Yeah, right. Because this is this is when they take off. So yeah, I, I wanted to mention about mm-hmm. that uh, when they use the dials, they all move to a corner of the room that we previously haven't seen. Um, and it's very shadowy. It's actually <laughs> pitch black, <laughs> uh, they're, they're lit, but the room behind them has no light at all. And I, I'm assume that is some special effects right. thing that aids in making them appear to vanish. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It was not very subtle. <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey. So they are now back to where we started, and they're hoping to meet Arbitan and give him these keys so he'll let them get out of here. And next thing we see is, you know, we don't know exactly what's been happening or how they got distributed, because it's clear when you use these travel dials that people kind of get rearranged according to the plot. And (laughs) (laughs) so we see the board, the the wetsuit guys, are interrogating Altos. And Altos, who recently has been a, you know, pretty self-confident guy, is all of a sudden sort of a different character. He's a very um weak person. And then they bring Sabitha in, and she is also a little different, because she's in her place now. She was the daughter of Arbitan, I think, and, and so mm-hmm. she has some, some position here, and she's a little haughty, and she says, you know, Altos is just a servant. She doesn't care about him now. You know, it's, it's, that's not true. She's just trying to keep them from hurting him. Yeah, it's
3: a, it's a gambit. Yeah. So
2: they threaten to kill him. She's like, eh, I don't care about him. And then they actually they get smart and they threaten to kill her <laughs> if he doesn't tell them where, where the keys are. And he tells them that the doctor has at least the final key. So I guess they
3: got the other keys from them. Yeah. And uh, Sabitha, I, I like her little reaction shot here because it's, it's it's kind of funny the way she handles it. She she gets this really worried look and covers her face with her hands. And uh, but but at, at the same time, it's also kind of convincing. It's a uh, uh, it's just a good mix of mm-hmm. comical and convincing. Um, it's a fun little thing there. And my note here is that the crew screws around for a while. I
2: think they're basically using up time. I don't think anything to happens. Yeah, happen. they're
3: just bantering. <laughs>
2: yep. And then Ian and Susan come into the main room, you know, where the conscious machine is, and they find someone in a white robe who they assume to be Arbitan. Now, the the funny thing about this is because the Vord had these huge head things um, on their wetsuits, the, the head... Of the robe is about three times larger <laughs> than a human head. Mm-hmm. so it's a little hard to think
3: that Arbitan is sitting under this robe, but yeah. you know they mm-hmm. they go for that. there's a there's a scene in there where your tech, before Ian and Barbara show up, he's inserting the keys one by one into the conscience of Marinus. And it's neat, partly because it's 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 a filler scene, but it's it's a little more interesting than your typical filler scene. But every time he puts a key into the machine, you hear an organ key play, or electric mm. piano, some similar instrument, you know that. Uh, um, and each one is in a different octave, so it's mm. it's just kind of sort of building up as he puts the four different keys in. And uh, it's a neat little scene. And we also failed to mention that uh, at one point, urtex uh lone frog man <laughs> that he brought along with him uh attacks uh the crew and so of course they decide it's time to split up <laughs> so that, that brings us up to date
4: here yeah,
2: right. <laughs> okay um so yeah Ian and susan find this Vord, who we we now know as urtex uh, pretending to be Arbiton except his head is really, really big, but he's inside this robe. When they get close to him, he warns them away, saying he has a deadly disease, <laughs> because he doesn't want them to, to look at him too closely. And Ian, at least seemingly credulously, gives him the key, the final key, and leaves with mm-hmm. Susan. And you're kind of like, well, what's up with this? Why did he just give this person the key who clearly
3: wasn't Arbitan? <laughs> and and Yurtek, when they leave, he tells his henchman henchman singular (laughs) that he doesn't want them killed because he wants everyone quote here when the final key is inserted in my power is absolute and uh you know not not killing them to me that's that's just you know super villainy for dummies you got to kill them (laughs) the first chance you get
2: i think makes sense uh the full crew gets together And they talk about this, and Ian reveals that he actually gave the fake key. So this fake key has played a key role, (laughs) so to speak, (laughs) uh, throughout the entire story uh, to the imposter. So he he did realize it wasn't Arvitan. And we learn that uh, the machine will blow up when the fake key is put in. And, you know, Urtek puts in the final key, and it blows up.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I guess a good way for a bad guy to go. Yeah, and it was a. Uh, it was, it, it didn't actually blow up. I mean, they didn't rig it with explosives because that would have cost, cost money. money. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but they they put in some little weird light effects that were fun. So yeah, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And uh, then we're back at the TARDIS and my note here is just talk talk talk. <laughs> you
3: know, there is
2: a bunch of discussion, none of it means anything, doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, the doctor
3: know. gives Sabitha some encouragement, but I'm guessing we're never going to see her again after no, this. No. Yeah, none of this is important and we're at the end of the story.
4: Mm-hmm. Oh so, and uh-huh.
3: when the TARDIS model leaves this time, it doesn't make any sound at all. It just vanishes. You know, that, again, is an interesting
2: point, and it really tends to have to do with who the director is, uh, you know, and the sound people, because every once in a while, the directors or whoever's working on it doesn't realize that there's supposed to be a sound,
4: <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so
2: they don't put it in. So, it's just a funny little thing that, that comes up. You know, it's the kind of thing mm-hmm. that never would happen today, but back then, again, yeah. you know, you didn't really have a Bible... Um, so it just depended on whether people who were around on the set knew what you were supposed to do. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, I definitely have thoughts on this, but before you give your final determination, let's get your thoughts and then I will present mine.
3: Well, all right. Let's see. Um, the first episode, I mean, taking this all six episodes, Mm -hmm. I'd say the first episode you could probably skip. The second one, uh, probably watch. And then maybe these last two, probably watch. Although, so so there'd be the second, the fifth, and sixth, I'd say. You could watch, but honestly, if you skipped all six of them, you could do that too. <laughs> <laughs> it's so not, not,
2: so it's we're not really recommending this one.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I had fun with it, but it, if, I, if I'm if i just picking the, the plums to really show off Doctor Who, uh, I think we could give it a miss.
2: So I have a complicated relationship with this. Um, I agree with you on the overall story, and if I were trying to introduce somebody to Doctor Who, I absolutely would not start here. But if you're willing to pick and choose, or if you're into Doctor Who, you know and want to go through the whole history i actually really like the second episode velvet web with mm-hmm. the brains and eye stocks i i first of all i think it's clever the whole idea that they all think that they're in this fabulous place um but it's actually a really run down place and they're just you know being mesmerized i yeah. love having brains and eye stocks in jars i think that's just great
3: <laughs> they they are fun and
2: then i liked the murder mystery
3: you know um, mm-hmm. Now,
2: I here's what I would say ideal, and, and I I did not like anything else. Right, <laughs> so you could skip Screaming <laughs> Jungle, you could script you know, the guy in the hut, etc. Honestly, what they should have done is made two stories out of those, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and just had two complete Doctor Who stories from those. Um, but I will agree with you in terms of the overall story; it, it's not worth it. And in fact, here's here's my claim the next story we're going to watch is the Aztecs. And my feeling is regardless of whether you like the story or not. So we will see when we get there, what you think the Aztecs is the first proper doctor who story. Hmm. It is four episodes, which, you know, while they still won't have figured that out and we're still going to have lots of early episodes that are way longer or early stories that are way longer than that. Um, Four episodes is really the ideal for an early Doctor Who story. Mm. And the characters are established and, you know, I think the acting is good and and we'll see. Now, you know, again, I don't want to um, bias you too much. I'm just saying I think it's the model of a Doctor Who story going forward. And that all the stuff up to here has been them kind of figuring it out.
3: Yeah. And uh, trying out the possibilities. Yeah. Okay.
2: So we will see, but I definitely encourage people to uh, listen to our our next one. And now I'm going to say, normally when we go out, uh, I choose some you know interesting quote from the show for us to go out on. We're going to do something a little different this time. Uh-huh. The extras on the DVD for this story. Normally, there's like you know, interviews and documentaries and everything. There's very little for the story. Very, very few people wanted to say anything about this. So mm-hmm. basically what they have on the DVD is a like nine minute interview with the designer, Ray Cusick, who's in a very grumpy mood <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he had no budget. It was his first big show. Um And he, I just think everything he has to say about this is hilarious. And so we're going to go out so people understand what it is. We're going out with excerpts from this interview with the designer, Ray Cusick. And I think that will be fun. And we will see you next week.
1: (laughs) Very good. I suppose the theme of The Keys of Marrowness was beg, borrow, and steal. I mean, it was really impossible, really. Every episode had a particular problem. A lot of writers have are fairly clueless about sets. I did say to Terry Nation once, I said, you often write in your stage directions. They walk into a bare white room. What do you actually mean by that? He said, well, I couldn't think of anything else to put. You know, do what you like. One of the most difficult episodes was the episode where there was lots of trick effects Uh, nets falling, creepers strangling people, falling ceiling, ceiling, uh, a bed of spikes. I I don't know how we got through that day. Um, I I ended up feeling totally embarrassed by the whole thing. I thought it was awful, awful. It's the most unloved story as far as I'm concerned, really. And is
4: looking back on it, is there anything you're really proud of, and you think works very well?
1: Am I am I proud of anything in the keys of Mariner's? I can really say, no.
2: So this is the first time doing a podcast for each of us. Uh, we're on our fifth episode. Wanted to kind of check in on how it's going. So I kind of dragged you along with me on this venture. Uh, seems like you've been enjoying <laughs> it. What, what do you think, guys?
3: Yeah, I've been having a having a good time, and it's uh, listening to it has helped uh, uh, inspire me a little bit to try and be better at it. You know, I sort of approached it originally with the idea that I'm just gonna sit here and if if something needs to be said then I'll say it but I think uh you know I'm I'm getting more into the spirit of it you know where actually maybe I'll uh participate a bit more we'll we'll see <laughs> well
2: I think a good thing about this project is we're both having to stretch our skills and boundaries a bit and uh, absolutely the more you are talking the better <laughs>
3: so, <laughs>
2: Uh, originally, my plan was to select which stories we'd watch so we could avoid what I thought were, you know, the lesser stories. And then Guy felt it was best for him to watch them all so he could give, you know, his own accounting of whether people should watch them. And I think, especially with the last story, Edge of Destruction, that kind of proved true. I, I'm not a big fan of that story. It really doesn't work for me. And it's actually Guy's favorite story so far. So, <laughs> yeah. the, you know. I think that's great. It would be boring if we agreed on everything. It also shows that, as a jaded Doctor Who fan, I don't know everything. Um, mm-hmm. Ideally, we'll get into a big social media fight and generate some buzz. <laughs>
4: oh
3: yeah, yeah. I uh, I wanted to. Uh, yeah, after I had seen the first few episodes, I started wanting to see the whole shebang. Uh, I, I'm I kind of I'm kind of anal retentive that way, you know. Like if I you know, just just seeing the recommended episodes, I, I'd feel like, what am I missing out on? You know, not that I don't trust your judgment, but uh, you know.
2: Well, apparently, these... you shouldn't trust my judgment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's admirable. I was trying to save, uh, you know, dragging you through the sludge of Doctor Who, but uh, <laughs> you know, as I said, you're you're sacrificing yourself for people and finding some things that. That, you know, while they may not work for me or for a certain season, Doctor Who folks uh, might work better for new people. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've felt is it determined is that an hour or so is ideal for a podcast. So we did a two-hour Daleks episode. And before we publish it, I'm going to go back and chop that into two. So our listeners will have already seen that because it two hours is just too long and even trying to listen to it and edit it it's hard to get through that amount of material so i think an hour is good
3: yeah and i mean realistically one two hour show is the same as two one hour shows but there's i think there's a little psychological barrier there for some people certainly for me you know if i see something is two hours i'll be that maybe later (laughs) (laughs) yep absolutely
2: uh, on my part, and I'm not saying you need to do this guy, but for my part, I have mentioned many times, oh, this is a kid's show, and it's kind of shocking that this thing was included in a kid's show, and I think that's okay for the first few episodes when that's really what it was, but at this point, I both think that's not that interesting to talk about, and over time, you know, Doctor Who obviously becomes more of an, an everybody and an adult show, and we're, you know, 50-plus-year-old guys watching this 50 year, years later, so... I'm just going to stop bringing that up as a point. I think it gets a bit boring after a
3: uh, while. So. All right, that's fair. I'll I'll try and remember not to bring it up. Although, uh, uh, as we will see in these three episodes today, uh, there's plenty more grim stuff uh, that goes on, but I guess we'll just take <laughs> that as, uh, as the normal course of events from here on out. <laughs> uh, let's see, also I'll mention, you
2: know, we're starting to line up guests to show up uh, as of our second season. I think it was good that that won't happen until our second season because we're kind of figuring out how to make all this work. You know, I've been yeah. learning how to edit. Uh, you have a new microphone. We're figuring out the format. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it only gets better from here. <laughs> okay. And I will tell you, and, and you know, maybe we can figure it out. Now, one downside with a, a more sensitive mic, which you do you have is, like, I can hear all the traffic behind you and everything. So we will cool. see... When I do the editing, and there's different techniques I can do, the degree I can get that out, and we'll, you know, again, we'll just have to, we'll figure it out. So,
3: yeah. Uh, okay. And uh,
2: one thing I will say and mention oh. there is, um, doing the editing has changed how I hear podcasts. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. So even. Popular, well-known podcasts now. I, I listen to them, and I'm like, "Oh, there was an edit. There was an edit. There's where they're <laughs> having to compress this guy because there was some sound problem." So oh, once you yeah. once your ear is attuned to this stuff, it actually kind of ruins other podcasts for you. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but it also has been a confidence booster because I'm like, "Wait a second, we sound better than that." <laughs>
3: so, <laughs> well, good. Yeah. Uh, And now that you mention it, I do have a kitchen window open here, so let me go shut that. Okay, that makes sense.